0: Coleman, this <laughs> is the season finale,
1: episode fourteen, and it is the David Deutsch episode. Wow, this is better than the season finale of Breaking Bad and Lost combined. uh Should I tell you heavens? I, I saw. Breaking oh my Bad. God, Jay, <laughs> Jesus <laughs> no Christ! No one me
0: for for uh, Harry Potter yet. Yeah. Really? I've seen a little bit of Breaking Bad. Huh? I don't watch a lot of TV. I feel like we of have
1: of some some British fans that. Could drag you from Harry with because of Harry Potter in the accent.
0: I escaped it so far. <laughs> in Interesting. Um, but so we've been hyping this episode like all year. Correction, you've been hyping. I've been it. hyping it. But the, <laughs> I have a confession to make to start the episode. I I keep putting it off, and I've kept putting it off. Not because I think it's so good, but I'm terrified of it. Mm. I'm actually terrified of this episode, mm. and not because of anything mm. David George says. Uh, I think David Deutsch is an impenetrable thinker Mm. and I do the responsibility that I have of trying to even Present his ideas to you or the audience is way beyond what I'm capable of doing Mm. So I'm gonna fuck it up. All right, and I just encourage everybody to read the beginning of infinity Like I I literally I can I've read the book three times. Mm. I I understand some of it Mm -hmm. but every single line of this book could basically be a book on its own it's just like confounding mind blowing idea after another one and they all make sense which is why it should be easy to explain to you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're all just so I don't know there's so much in that book just go read the beginning I I honestly think it's like on the level of origin of species Mm -hmm. as far as influential wow thinking and, and, and books that should be read and change the way
1: that we think about things. I think St- Sam Harris and Steve Pinker really like that book, right? I mean, everyone
0: should. Yeah, he's been on Sam's podcast, I think, three yeah. times.
1: And yeah, every time, man, sort of like, <laughs> I think he, he had
0: the line to Sam of something like, the sentence you just said is wrong in three different ways. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's such a David Deutsch, awesome. because <laughs> it, it, he's intimidating because he's so clear. Mm-hmm. But then he's also very humble, mm-hmm. which I'll get into about his philosophies. Um <laughs> but he
1: I'm gonna start using that sentence on you I, I, because that I'm, I'm, is wrong in, in five different ways. yes and Number then i'll explain one. it and you're like oh fuck <laughs>
0: um but it's true and honestly some of some of sam's blind spots of thinking david just like blows up if you actually understand uh-huh. david is on things like ai where uh-huh. sam is just mistaken and uh-huh. wrong um why we don't have AI, but the, the, like you could start with David Deutsch in totally different paths. So I don't, I don't know where to begin. Okay. And the other thing about this, I'll say, since this is our finale and the, the show has sort of evolved and I've learned a little bit about what it should be or should be doing as the season has gone on. Um, I've sort of, we've, as everyone has noticed, I think we've sort of gone away from the traditional, like, here's the dilemma, here's how it's read. Here's what we think about it. Mm-hmm. They've sort of drifted into like, here's the topic we're talking about. We're going to, we're going to like break it down. There actually is a specific dilemma. Wow, I didn't dilemma. Even notice that, but it did. We did. Like yeah, at the beginning, it was having to people that. reading it, right. which I might go back to a little in season right. two. Some of those are really fun, of just yeah. like, here's the trolley problem, do uh-huh. your thing. Um, but some of the thinkers and people we've had on, uh, I, I guess, let me defend why I think that's useful. I'm really interested in the sort of, Foundations and how how people are building their moral philosophies from the ground up and Like if I if I get your base moral philosophy, I think I've said this before about consciousness if I get Somebody's instinct or philosophy around something like the theory of mind Mm. I can almost perfectly predict how you're gonna answer a moral dilemma about something like should you eat meat or not? Mm. depending on what you think about consciousness Um, So with most of these topics, it's almost like instead of just staying on the output of like, here's the dilemma and here's how you answer it. And then we're going to argue about it. It's almost I want to go deeper into how do you start building Mm -hmm. your moral foundations in the first place? Um, So there is a but there is a specific dilemma to talk about on Mm -hmm. this one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Although in the conversation, it's like we, we go everywhere. I think even in the last episode with Matthew Crawford, you expressed maybe some frustration because it wasn't. It wasn't in the end sort of a policy discussion Mm. of should we have self-driving cars or not. Mm. It was much more of a psychological investigation and Mm. philosophical investigation into the transformations that society undergoes when we introduce something like self-driving cars. Even if we all admit, if we had to be forced into a policy sort of decision, that we would all be in favor of them. Mm. We would all move toward, we would call it progress of introducing them. Um, This episode would probably be similar. Mm. Because the specific dilemma, I think, is actually fucking good and fascinating. It's it's something like... Um, I could read it exactly, but I don't even have to. There's a couple, a married couple named Andre and Leslie. I only say that because we reference their names. And Andre and Leslie, who are both deaf. And this is in a, a, a near-future world where we have the ability to genetically sort of select traits for our unborn children from a whole menu. And in that world andre and leslie want to select for the traits of their unborn baby to be deaf so they intentionally want to have a deaf child so and they argue for it um saying you know like deaf culture is beautiful Mm -hmm. they want to connect with their baby more and that's sort of their their wish is to have a deaf child and Mm so I think on its face, it's just a fascinating question and goes in a lot of different directions. And David and I get there and we talk about it, but like, I, again, I'm terrified of this episode because in order to talk about David Deutsch's philosophies and even hear them on his own, you have to sort of just understand the way David Deutsch thinks about the universe from step one. And I don't even know where that to begin with that. What do you, do you know anything about David Deutsch and his sort of like
1: instinct about he, knowledge a or? physicist or mathematician? Yeah, let me start by... I know why Pinker likes him. Why does Pinker like him? Um, based on what I remember from Enlightenment Now, Pinker quotes him in the context of solutions to problems creating new problems. Yes, which is a, a and, Karl
0: Popper idea, actually. Okay. Yeah.
1: And that seems like a banality to say. It seems sort of like a platitude, but mm-hmm. one gets the sense that there's some profundity behind it. That's It's like a, some kind of like axiom. And I... And it, and it seems like a lot of Deutschisms are like that. Like yes. if you if you just see the one sentence description, you're like, "Oh, that seems right." But like, why is that brilliant? Yeah. But probably there's some very deep, like, mathematical or physics based logic behind his platitudes. That yeah. Make them more than more than platitudes. And
0: sometimes it, that's a great way of putting. it. And sometimes you don't need you don't need the math or even the physics. They they seem like obvious sentences that then have profound implications. Mm. Sometimes they're so obvious Mm. that you missed it. Mm. Here's one. A lot of his work is cleaning up the messes that we all are living with and making philosophically in the scientific world and in the moral world and in every other world. Two of the really, really big ones that he takes down in a chapter called The Spark, it's the third chapter, of that book are are two things that we take for granted. One is this chemical scum notion to say that we're just an animal on a typical star and a typical part of the universe. And we're just atoms and we're just not important. He mm. calls it the principle of mediocrity, mm. which feels very intuitive mm. and you can almost get some moral sort of uh, flavor to that of like, get over yourself. You're mm. not such a big deal. Mm. The other one is this spaceship earth uh, statement that has a lot of environmentalism in it of a realizing that we're an evolved animal and we have evolved in this environment and there must be the environment is here to take care of us the earth is a sort of life support system for us as an organism and so if we push too far in either direction the life support system breaks and then we will all die mm. and he he start with the principle of mediocrity um, he destroys that and takes that down even though it it is true from some level but think of it this way knowledge and knowledge creation is the most significant phenomenon in the universe Mm. so picture just like the atoms of a universe Mm. and you're watching some planet from really far away and you just see the atoms moving around and it's all sort of explainable by completely explainable by the laws of physics if you knew them all and then suddenly some monumental thing happens, like a little ship goes to the, the moon or the entire uh, planet just transforms itself into a giant computer or something that seems to break the laws of physics, like even on Earth, oil. It's like dinosaur blood, basically buried deep in the Earth suddenly comes up from the bottom and then ends up in all of our cars the only thing to explain the phenomenon of that you can't explain it using just physics you you explain it through there must be knowledge there of how to do that thing which again sounds very um plain and simple like of course there's knowledge but it places just on a physical level as a physicist the 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 appearance of knowledge as the most significant phenomenon in the universe. Forget supernova, forget other thing else. The creation of knowledge and the the arrival of knowledge mm. transforms the universe mm. like nothing else. Mm. And that immediately places humans, or let's not instead of humans, persons, people that have the ability to create that knowledge, at the center of a sort of moral universe. So, <laughs> like again, it seems like a very basic thing to say. Mm-hmm. But then the implications become huge and it all, it's, I I find his book empowering and, um, all of his work, very, we'll get to his thoughts on optimism, but, um, just what's, what's even the word for it? Energizing about our possibilities that corrects i think what he calls a philosophical pessimism that is just an epidemic in our society hmm. of that we're we're just another animal hmm. and we're not special in fact no we actually are hmm. and we have a huge responsibility for that um so i don't know like that, that to, to your your instinct is right that hmm. it's like a basic statement about like oh knowledge is important but it's like wait a minute think about that and think about that hard and actually make it strange hmm. and then hmm start there Mm -hmm. so i don't know cool (laughs) yeah i don't know what to say about that and uh, so uh, we'll jump into it because again this is going to be i'm terrified of this episode i think i've probably already fucked it up uh david (laughs) will probably already correct everything that i've said because he's very precise with his language Mm. uh which i appreciate and even the way i was asking him how he would want me to introduce him Mm. and he had a lot of things but what he ended up saying is is this let me just play it like Karl
2: Popper, I don't mm. really believe in subjects. Right. So he says one shouldn't speak in terms of subjects, but in terms of problems. <laughs> uh, so I can more easily say what I'm interested in rather than what subject that is. Right.
0: So <laughs> even that is is he's, what problems are you interested in? What problems are you trying to solve? Mm. He, very much, I think one of the reasons Sam Harris likes him a lot is that they agree on the unification of knowledge. Mm. And when you go on a college campus and see different departments, mm. it's, it's sort of a bad habit that we have where knowledge is actually unified at some level and that's the real quest. Mm. And knowledge from one department inevitably and should bleed into other departments. And he thinks that points to evidence of sort of a, an objective notion of progress in knowledge. Um, again, we could talk about all those ideas about the, the reach of explanations in those things. I, I just have to start playing it, and we'll just have yeah. to start talking, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Before we get into this couple, I guess their names are Andre and Leslie in the hypothetical, who want to have this deaf okay. uh, child engineer it. We're probably going to spend a lot of time talking about the foundations of, of morality and how you even approach some of those problems. I'm going to try to frame what I think I understand some of your arguments in your your recent book, The Beginning of Infinity, about morality are, Mm -hmm. is that you guess – I'll start with this and then clean it up for me. You guess that there are objective truths in the space of morality to uh, to be discovered that are maybe just as discoverable fundamentally as something like – um, the atoms in this table between us. Yes, okay. and
2: my guess about that has the same status in my mind as my guess that you exist or that I exist. Uh, it's just realism.
0: Right. And so what, what is the, the grounding of that? So like in that book, you you seem to try to bind everything through your very expansive definition of explanation. Is yes. that still at the ground of that? Yes, okay. it
2: is. And um, I, I think the... Um, the reason for realism that binds all the realisms together in, 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 in your terms is um, that the arguments against it are all the same in, in every field and they are all fallacious in every field. So all of them are like, well, how can you possibly know? How can you possibly know that? In, in science, the, the sceptical argument is, um, well, uh, your theories might seem to work, but how do you know that's not an error? It's always possible that, that you're mistaken. You could be dreaming. Uh, the, the world could be misleading. There could be a demon out there. Um, and... Um, and that, that works on the biggest level, like you could be completely mistaken about everything, like Descartes uh, mm-hmm. tried, to, tried to reason from. Or it could be particular things, you know, how do you know that global warming is happening? And, uh, and fr- so from the smallest thing to the largest thing. Now, the same is true with, with uh, philosophical ideas. You know, they, pe- people say, um, h- how can you uh, know what is right and wrong when you can't see it? Mm. But, well, they forget that you can't see physical facts either. You can, you can only see your sense impressions, and even those you don't see for what they are. So that there are only crackles in the nerves, but you, you never experience those. So, so everything is behind um, a, a structure of explanation. And you can make the argument that explanation in itself is, is uh, a conceit, uh, is is worthless and what you should really do is consult the holy book or, or mm. your feelings or, or whatever but those are all mistakes and they're all the same mistake in all these areas in in morality in mathematics as well there are the intuitionists and, and so on it's, it's all the same mistake and I'm so I'm a realist mm. in all these areas and all for the same reason
0: right and that mistake is is Usually tied towards some sort of empiricism, instrumentalism mistake. I don't know if, you, if you mind, sort of just extracting yes, that. Yeah. So the mistake,
2: yeah. uh, the specific mistake in the case of science um, is empiricism. the The mistake in term in in uh, say morality yeah. is it could also be called empiricism. It's not usually called that, but you might call it scientism, mm. um, or, or you might call it um, physics envy. Uh, But really, it's it's the same thing. I I suppose uh, Karl Popper would say they are all striving for foundations, for authority that can't possibly exist. Mm. And they they assume that without authority, ideas are worthless. Without foundations, they're worthless. So I, I reject all authority in regard to ideas and and all foundations.
0: The reason I think this dilemma in particular, if it is a dilemma, uh, I'm really interested in your take in particular as we started to dance around some of the reasons, this is going to get real messy. I'm sure. Good. Yeah. It, like all things probably in morality are. It, so when I, when I am thinking about this couple that wants to intentionally select for deafness and, and bring a, bring about a deaf consciousness, whatever that, that means, um, and I think about your, your arguments in your, your book, I'm thinking about specifically how you view evidence. And if you don't mind giving me your sort of description and definition of evidence in the view of sort of your explanation, um, because it's going to get messy. It feels to me that I would guess that you would be, you would guess that this is a, a immoral action to take because it would be de- denying someone access to a certain kind of evidence in the universe by denying them the sensory experience of hearing. But that that might be too simplistic of a reading of your view of I, I, evidence. I, I,
2: well, I'm personally revolted by the idea, <laughs> but I wouldn't jump to saying that it's, it's absolutely immoral, um, uh, let alone advocating that it be illegal. Hmm. Um, uh, but... Uh, well, you'll see when we get into it more that, that, that uh, I think this is uh, a complicated issue involving more than just theories of morality.
0: As far as I understand it, this is what I try to do a lot on the show yes. is I under- misunderstand it. And then you, the expert, tells me that I've misunderstood it. Okay. Um, as far as I understand your view of conjecture, the, this is it's something like we notice a phenomenon in the universe and we conjecture an explanation that would. Well, I've already uh, made a mistake. W-
2: yes, okay. we notice a problem, a problem. And the problem is in our minds. Now, it may relate to the universe. Okay. Um, A problem is a conflict between ideas. So, for example, we notice something and uh, we can't think why it happens and it it seems weird. Mm -hmm. And so that's a conflict between what we think we saw and what we think ought to have been there. So that's a conflict now. If we also think that that's interesting or important or, or fruitful or whatever we'll pursue it further by making conjectures and conjectures are always of the form that one or other of the conflicting ideas is either false or inadequate so it, it could be or they could both they could both be false and inadequate mm-hmm. So uh, And what we're trying to do, and that, that would be an error then in our conception of the world. And what we're trying to do always is correct errors by making conjectures that don't have the problem. If they replace or, or augment our ideas, they, the, the resulting uh, structure won't have the problem right. uh, that we thought we saw. Sometimes we think we see a problem, but the answer is that it wasn't a problem uh, and
0: so on. Right. And so you bring up things like... Um, well, the problem of seasons happening yes. in your local environment, and then the act of conjecturing a explanation that would solve this problem. Yes, in that instance, is an act of what you would call just pure creativity. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. And then is where this notion of evidence comes in, because if I have a conjecture, you bring up something like the gods did it with yes. some elaborate story. Versus, let's say, you have a conjecture being like, yes. "I think the Earth has an axial tilt."
2: Yes. Well, ah, the, the, right. there's the conjecture, and then there's criticism, usually even before the evidence. Okay. So some some uh, conjectures can be rejected just, for example, just because they don't solve the problem. You think they will solve the problem, and you say, "Oh, well." But even if the conjecture is true, the problem is unchanged. Mm. So that didn't address the problem. Uh, but but then the, the the conjectures that survive this criticism. Then, then there is evidence. If it's if it's a scientific matter, if it's a matter of what the physical world is like, then uh, we can look for evidence mm-hmm. uh, to, in in the hope that it will uh, uh, refute one of the competing ideas. That that still doesn't solve the problem because we've still got to conjecture a replacement for it. Uh, but it, if if we if we have two ideas and it and it refutes one of them. Then we're home,
1: right?
0: So, like, so to use the seasons example, because I think that was yes. probably a good one to, to extrapolate. Um, what can you talk about? What would constitute evidence then, if to decide in your in your definitions yes. which conjecture or explanation is a so good one versus a bad one?
2: First, there's there's a problem, uh, which is uh, ancient people, the the seasons and the weather were very important to them. But they didn't have anything in their worldview that indicated why one season uh, morphed into another. So uh, they wanted to understand it in as many ways as possible um, for the purpose of uh, preparing for seasons and crops and whatever. And um, they realized that there's nothing in the phenomenon of winter that seems to foreshadow that spring will come. So, you know, sometimes it was late and uh, so it was a bit terrifying. It's something they wanted to understand. Also, by the time they got philosophical, it's it's a very interesting problem. So what what is it that's different um, at the end of the winter from the beginning? What has happened there? As I say in my book, uh, the obvious solutions are that what's different is that there is someone causing the winter, and they've they've changed their mind, or that they've achieved their purpose for the winter, and then they go on to another purpose, just like humans do. The trouble with that, as I say in my book, is is that it doesn't really explain anything. People often say it's not testable, but but that theory is testable um, because it implies that seasons are the same all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it could be refuted by making an expedition to somewhere else in the world and seeing that the uh, seasons are not in sync mm-hmm. what what's really wrong with that explanation is nothing to do with evidence it's it's to do with the the fact that it it could easily be uh, replaced by by a completely different causality uh, different gods or not gods or whatever and and therefore if you did have ev- ev- even if you did have evidence against it, you could easily dismiss it by by just changing the details of the theory. The details aren't implicated in the explanation. So the, the true explanation, on the other hand, which is the the tilt of the axis of the Earth, tells you exactly what's different about the end of the winter from the beginning, and uh, the, the, namely that the the Earth has moved around in its orbit around the Sun, but the the axis hasn't changed its orientation mm. that theory um, is not only testable, but even before you conceive of any test it's hard to change there's There's only one way that a, th- a theory like that could explain the seasons and if it if it made the wrong prediction it couldn't it wouldn't be fixable
0: you, you, know, you know what I think would be i'm trying to take this to your definition of person or people yes. Because I think that's what I'm trying to like dance around to get to is this notion. If I'm getting, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's as a universal constructor. Um, if if that's correct,
2: a, a universal explainer, explainer. Is, is is more relevant to to the morality problem,
0: right? And this child that Andre and Lisa are requesting to be brought into the world, I'm wondering at what sense. Would you answer at some sense? if you remove all of the, the, the sensory input organs of a uh, organism, at what point would it cease to be able to be a person in that definition? Is, does that question even yes, make sense? Yes, yes, yeah. yes,
2: it does. Uh, so I don't think that uh, the issue of what is a person and what has rights should be decided by the kind of sort of legalistic argument of what we shall deem to, to be a person. Uh, it, what is a person is a matter of fact. It's, it's uh, a, an entity that is capable of constructing explanations to, 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 to solve problems. And uh, whether a thing can do that or not is a fact. Um, it's not always possible to determine that fact, but that's a different issue. Mm. That's an issue of like what you would frame the law to say, because laws have to be framed in terms of determinable Things. But the morality, the the the, uh, the the metaphysics, the morality of the situation is about what the entity can do. Mm. Or to be exact, a person is not a body. A, per- a person is a mind. It's a, a program. It's a configuration of a brain that is the person. Um, if I if I lose an arm in an accident. I may become a different person as a result. I may become a resentful person or whatever, mm-hmm. but I don't become any less a person if, if I lose an arm. And if I grafted on another arm, I wouldn't become any more of a person if I had three or four arms or no matter how many I had. Um, um, so a, a person is a mind, which is a bit of software, mm-hmm. not a body, which is a bit
0: of hardware. And so, to play the amputation game that you, you started with yourself, yeah. if I start amputate, amputating senses, at what point would that, in your definition of person, remove your none? E- even none.
2: if I'm even if I'm totally in sensory in a sensory deprivation tank,
0: you would still be uh, able to create explanations? Yes, can you exp- explain that? How that would be? Well,
2: for the simplest case is if if I'm just uh, thinking about things that have happened to me. But mm. but
0: e- even or that I hope
2: will happen to me, like being let out. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, even if I've never seen the outside yeah. um, and grew up, as it were, in a sensory deprivation mm. tank, I could still think, for example, I might be a pure mathematician mm. and I, I might think about purely mathematical concepts. Now, there is, uh, it's, I think it's unknown whether... Uh, a newborn baby actually does this or whether culture has any input into the creative ability. Now, uh, I, I think it's plausible that the creative ability starts before birth. And I also think it's plausible that it starts sometime after birth. We, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And doing any experiments on this would be horrendously immoral. <laughs> right. So yeah. so uh, we won't know until we have a comprehensive theory of of how creativity works, Mm -hmm. which we don't.
0: One of the challenges with Deutsch, I've pointed this out before, is like you read a David Deutsch book and you suddenly can't talk to anybody (laughs) 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 because your definition of these seemingly mundane words like knowledge, explanation, person, becomes so precise. And I think accurately defined by him that you just become paralyzed of, like, starting at square one of, like, this is what person means and should mean. This is what explanation means.
1: So I realize I'm going to probably have to do that here Mm -hmm. because I'm lost even listening to it. Yeah. (laughs) It seems like his definitions are really his. They're his. Is he he prescriptive in the sense of saying you you ought to adopt my definitions because they're either getting at some objective truth, or is he just doing what good philosophers do and defining his terms so that we can not have semantic debates
0: well he's certainly defining his terms so we could get around the semantic debates but i think he's even more precisely pointing out that the terms being used or well, here's an example empiricism mm-hmm. empiricism sounds like a good word mm-hmm. but he he takes it literally mm-hmm. meaning empiricism like he puts these at the end of all of his chapters really, his like summaries and definitions so i'm sort of looking at some of them here and i don't quite have the empiricism one open in front of me at the moment mm-hmm. but it's 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 a he calls it a mistake it's a mistaken mm-hmm. philosophy mm-hmm. that basically says all knowledge is derived from direct experience of your senses and you could you could almost say like well he's just being too literal here like of course you can't well, get that from with your that senses.
1: one i understand because that's commonly used to to describe david hume's attitude mm. and some others you know, so that's an that, empiricist. Yeah. Yeah. That definition, I think, is more widely used. And I think he's hewing to the typical way of understanding that word. But with like person person. And, yeah. Let's see. What, what other words did you use here?
0: I mean, even so explanation. Let me give you some of yeah. his like what a good explanation versus a bad explanation is. And we use the seasons example there, although there's other ones. Mm-hmm. A Good explanation is an explanation that is difficult to vary mm-hmm. and still explains the thing that it purports to explain a bad explanation is one that of course that is an easy to vary while mm-hmm. still explaining the thing it purports to explain so he he has a, a thing about watching like a magician do a conjuring trick mm-hmm. and like watching the cup and balls or whatever and let's mm-hmm. say you're watching it and based on your theory of the universe and physics and whatever else, he's about to you know, remove a cup and you expect a ball to be there and then it's not. Mm-hmm. This is what he calls a problem, mm-hmm. right? So he defines that too, a problem very literally is like conf- conflict and ideas. Something must be wrong here about yeah. your theory. Yeah. So then you need to conjecture a, an explanation mm-hmm. for it. And let's say you conjecture, well, it's magic, it's actual mm-hmm. magic. Mm-hmm that actually does explain why the ball is not there yeah but it's so easy to vary because mm-hmm. if the ball was there you could also say it's magic mm-hmm. still and then i or even a more sort of fair uh, conjecture that he brings up rather than magic is something like you could say the magician did something that's mm-hmm. true that actually explains it but it's so easy to vary that you can do it explains again the opposite of itself mm-hmm. Um, And then if I explain or I conjecture, like, I think what's happening is he's palming the ball at Mm. the moment that he switches it and it's so fast that we can't see whatever I have a whole explanation that's very specific. Mm. So it's hard to vary. If I vary anything, then you can it's going to not explain what it's going to explain. And it might be a good one or a bad one. And then we have this thing called evidence and as he says, even before, I've been in sometimes a culture of criticism of even just logically talking through and different modes of criticism to figure out which conjecture may be a good theory. So even that is like a long way to say something that might seem obvious about good explanations versus bad explanations. But he, he grounds the... Um, the the jewel of the universe and we'll get there later but i should start with it now so people don't get too lost the jewel of the universe is the quest for good explanations Mm. and and a person really is borrowing the person definition there from more of the aristotle thing think less human and Mm. think more the mind Mm. and almost a phenomenological Mm. um thinker I, i find him to be of the capabilities of a person is what defines a person and the capabilities is an entity or a in his version, a software, whatever it is, that ca- has the ability to create new explanations.
1: All of that makes sense to me. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think uh, I did it right. I like the way that he frames it, and yeah. you summarize it. Uh, yeah. The the one thing I'm looking out for as we as we hear the you know the rest of his thoughts yeah. is where the concept of suffering, mm. well being comes in to his picture of morality.
0: Yeah. I I think I'll have to sort of, uh, drag his ideas into the realm of sort of more traditional moral philosophy and see if they stand. Mm. He might be even opposed to me doing it. We'll, we'll try and we'll get there later. Um, I agree with you because one thing that is also maybe a bit frustrating about, about Deutsch not only is the language sort of like you need a primer of like learning basic words again. Um, but it also the applicability of it is profound at the same time as it's very messy and complicated. And so I don't even know if the end we're going to get is... I think we'll get a specific framework of how we could answer this question, but given the knowledge of the question or the hypothetical pose about the deaf child, which we didn't even talk about really at all in that set, segment, is almost unknowable. So we'll get there with it. I wanted to also with like the... Um the another thing to keep in mind that's so profound about him um about the philosophies and philosophies of science that he all he calls all mistakes in making all the same mistake as mm-hmm. the anti-realism one mm-hmm. is um he would—he calls himself a fallibilist, and, and, and fallibilism, which is really just an attitude and a commitment to, to always knowing that you could be wrong and your theories are incomplete, mm. which you're always in the state of. Mm. And rather than empiricism, which would have sort of a, a, a different kind of skepticism, but but a it's a quest for certainty rather than a quest for knowledge. So something like empiricism and almost all these mistakes are a quest for certainty. Mm. And when you reject certainty that you will certainly have the right theory of the universe, whether it's gravity or morality or aesthetics or anything else, um, Is is not to deny some people make this mistake not to deny that there is no such thing as progress Mm -hmm. This is something I think you talk about a lot Like just because you don't know the right answer doesn't mean you you don't have objective progress along the way Mm -hmm. And you can't know the right answer But just to even pause that the name of his book is beginning of infinity And he discovers I think through thinking these things out a lot of different kinds of beginnings of infinity But that's one of my favorite ones of, and he uses this analogy, which isn't original to him of the, the Infinity Hotel, which gets very crazy and mathematical and above my head. But, there, but there's a way to there's a way to just start with it. So think again of, of any question where you cannot be certain and which is everything in this attitude of fallibilism. So even if you have a great theory in hand that's doing a great explan, 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 explanatory job of whatever it purports to explain, but it might have problems and you are open to that at all times. That that's a kind of infinity. And so imagine picture you're in to to grok the notion of infinity, which is just fun to do. um, Picture yourself in a hotel that has an infinite number of rooms. So a corridor that that is just infinitely long. And you wake up and you're in a room and you, and you're going to go out and open the door in in this hotel and look at the number on the room. They're just numbered sequentially. Let's say whole numbers from zero to infinity. And you look at the number on your door, no matter what that number is, if you look to your right, let's say that's the direction of infinity, it's infinitely far to the highest numbered room, Mm -hmm. which doesn't exist. And you can see the other way. And theoretically, you could see room number one at the start. Mm -hmm. So no matter where you are in whatever room you wake up in, you will be infinitely closer to room, the first room, the beginning of the hotel, than the end of the hotel. So no matter where you are and how much progress you've made on Mm -hmm. any question, you are literally always at the beginning of infinity. Mm -hmm. And he discovers this sort of truth of the beginning of infinity and progress and in knowledge everywhere mm. but this is not today de- which for, for is actually rather a lovely and liberating truth to discover mm. because there's always work to do literally always work to do so he borrows this from, from Karl Popper of of uh, the definition of progress is replacing old problems with new ones mm. or better problems as it were right. um, so <laughs> I, I, I again I don't I'm terrified still of this episode I feel like I'm trying to like weave through Deutsch's definitions Um, and and I still and I'll struggle. You'll hear the entire time of bringing it back to the deaf child. And at mm-hmm. some point, I sort of just abandon it. And I'm like, just tell me what you think. Mm. Um, but <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. Ask me a question. I can't. I can't like play the part of David Deutsch as well as he does. But I'm very protective of him.
1: Yeah, I mean, his ideas are very compelling. Mm. I think. N- nothing has struck me as wrong so far Yeah, and at the same time I, I'm struggling to see how he applies his idea how his idea should make me think differently or in any particular way about mm. morality
0: yeah uh, I think they will with optimism let me see if this makes sense to put here I'm going to have to I'm gonna, at least I'm going to have a couple of weeks to edit this one because the, I'm going to be in Peru trying to edit it Um with let me let me put it this way, yeah be, to be honest, Coleman, it's like his idea I've been reading it all all day mm. his ideas of morality are ch- so fucking tricky and as a mm. moral realist because he's just an everything realist mm-hmm. and he, but he's just guessing so he doesn't know the answers here um and he even calls himself out at some point in it and he's like, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays I think I'm a foundationalist, and the other days I'm not and like he de- <laughs> he doesn't he hasn't solved the answer of morality here mm. um But he, I'll put it this way, his definition of optimism, another thing to really keep on board in in the David Deutsch vernacular, is his definition of of optimism is all evil is due to lack of knowledge. Mm. Which, as he says, is not even really a definition of optimism, but an explanation for failure. So why something is failing is just you don't know how, you don't have the knowledge yet of how to make it succeed. Again, it sounds very banal, like what mm-hmm. is he really saying there? But think about it harder and it's profound. Mm-hmm. So the distance between you doing something, anything, on any scale that doesn't break the laws of physics, which, mm-hmm. which we're trying to figure out, mm-hmm is doable the only thing is the knowledge of how to do it mm-hmm. so acquiring that knowledge is all you need whether that's turning the entire solar system into a space station mm-hmm. that nothing about that breaks the laws of physics nothing but obviously there's a lot of knowledge that you need to do in order to get there yeah. um and calling it evil to not be able to do it is um again has a moral flavor to it but i think one that he feels comfortable using because maybe the obviousness of it um but also
1: i'm I'm, I'm a little bit lost where does evil come into that
0: yeah so like let me an example of um the black plague killed a whole like a third of the population of europe when it happened right Mm -hmm. or let's even let's imagine a civilization that got wiped out by a by a plague which happened and may yet happen Uh, what's that one
1: coronavirus Oh, it may yet happen oh yeah,
0: well, let's hope not, <laughs> but so let's say it does if the coronavirus wipes us out, mm. you could tell a lot of explanations of why it happened, but this but the truest one or a very true one I would say that that Deutsch would say is we didn't have the knowledge of how to stop it again, it sounds very banal, but we didn't have the knowledge of how to stop it, and if the, we didn't
1: only, the only thing I'm confused about there is where does the role of intention come in? So hmm. you know, what if someone wants to wipe out the human race, has the knowledge to stop coronavirus, but doesn't stop it because they enjoy seeing. They grass? enjoy
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. And he does point to um, mm-hmm. that there are enemies of civilization. Mm-hmm. I, I think at some point I will say David Deutsch hasn't solved the foundational problem of morality and he'll admit that later in this interview. Um, so, I think I think you ha- the bootstraps that he finds mm. are uh, let's call it scientific and mathematical proofs of progress. Mm. What he would call progress and guessing, really guessing that there are. I mean, he would. I don't know if he would call them a guess, but aesthetic and moral objective progress as well. Um, I don't know if he solved that. He'll call that a bootstrap at some point. That yeah, what is to say that we ought to continue progressing versus we ought to just intentionally stop progressing if if a person is something that can create explanatory knowledge and explanatory knowledge is the only thing that can create let's call it um f- physical pro- progress mm-hmm. uh, stopping the asteroid that comes to hit if there's, if there's an asteroid that comes to hit us tomorrow and it wipes us out the only thing that stopped it from happening or or allowed it to happen is that we didn't have the knowledge to prevent it to happen. Mm -hmm. And you might say, well, what about the intention? What if someone says intentionally, I want that thing to hit us. Would they be immoral? The, The conjecture there is that there is such a thing as, as moral knowledge or even political will mm. knowledge that that would also that would also explain it mm. It might be a bit of a cop out but mm. buy it for now that there is a kind of moral knowledge that we didn't have or the mm. person who intentionally wanted it to happen that didn't yet have that then caused that evil to happen mm-hmm. so yeah the word evil has a maybe it's a bit of a cheat i don't know but it it does have a moral quality that i think holds up there that um, you don't have to take too much on board that an asteroid hitting us and wiping us out and s- and ending the the only instance that we know of in the universe of explanatory knowledge creation to be erased would be a kind of evil.
1: Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that got us there. That helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see where he goes. Me too, because <laughs> I don't
0: really remember. In the the hypothetical, and you know we haven't even really concretely talked about it directly that much yet. What's lurking around it for me is you know we're we're talking about Andre and Leslie deciding to remove a sensory sort of experience from their their child. What's lurking around this is what if we flipped it in a way of imagine a a, a near future where we could you know easily. Raise the IQ or intelligence or something of every you know unborn child with a simple pill or something. In that world, would it be immoral to not to not do that? Something as, as I guess what I'm getting at is like: is there a right, an inherent birthright as a person to to have as much qualia as you possibly can?
2: So this this is where I think uh, the answer to to that sort of question it can't be found entirely in morality. Okay. Um, let's th- just step back a bit. Um, rights, theory of rights is an approximation to, to morality. And, and uh, so long as you're thinking in terms of rights, it's only persons that can have rights. And rights depend on choices. They, they depend on the choices that a person makes. So I, I may have a right to, to emigrate. That mm. doesn't mean I have to emigrate. I have a right to free speech. That doesn't mean I have to say things. Hmm. So all rights properly conceived, in in my view, are rights to choose something, to choose between something. So any rights that this deaf or hearing child may have are to do with that child's choices. Uh, you might say... OK, but uh, since I've said the, the, the fetus, the embryo, uh, can't make choices, so it doesn't have any rights, so it doesn't matter what you do to it. That's, that's not the case. You can easily harm someone, deprive them of rights before they are born, not because the entity before they are born has the rights, but because they, they will have them. So, for example, if you um, uh, put poison into a hospital crib, that you know a baby will be put into once it is born. But the baby hasn't even been conceived yet. And, you know, this crib isn't going to be used except for this one baby, <laughs> as, as maybe a rather contrived example. <laughs> but you can imagine that kind of example. What, what, if you do something that's going to harm a person, it doesn't matter whether the person's uh, been born yet, if, if you reasonably, sh- or reasonably believe or should believe that the person that there will be a person who is harmed by that, and who doesn't want to be uh, because the harm is always about whether they want it or not. Mm -hmm. um, Then it's immoral to do that, that harm. And then uh, you, you run into the problem that different people want different things. So, uh, and that's why I said, it's not, it's not that there isn't a more answer to be, to be found for this question that is purely within morality. It So with the deafness, it depends what this child would want. Now, not even when, he, when the child is a baby. It's when the child expresses an opinion. So um, suppose that this was a common practice and suppose that, that uh, it always happened. Let's take a simple case. It always happened that when children of this kind grow up, they deeply resent it mm. uh, suppose all of them do suppose ninety nine percent of them do they they deeply resent it then I think it wouldn't make sense to say that they couldn't sue their parents for having done this to them just as if they had done it on the, on the previous day it, it it makes no difference if the parents are in this situation where most people deeply resent the, the this having been done to them um, the, the the parents should reasonably expect this to happen, and therefore they shouldn't do something that they reasonably expect the person won't consent to. Mm. Similarly, if only one percent of the people re, re, who, who this is done to resent it, then it's very hard to say that this should be wrong, unless something else has been done to that person <laughs> that deprives them of something else, not mm. just hearing, but reason. Mm. The, the ability to choose so uh, and that is again a matter of fact whether they have been not always easy to detect from the outside if if you look at if the social worker comes around and and is asked the question are these parents brainwashing the child to say later that the the the, the, the that uh, he consents um are they brainwashing him or are they merely bringing him up in, in their culture? And if they're bringing him up in their culture, is it an evil culture? Right. Or or is it a reasonable culture even though it... dis uh, Now, because morality is objective, all these questions have answers mm-hmm. and because facts are objective, all the factual issues also have answers. They may not be easy to find, but... Uh, they, they have answers. By the way, uh, yeah. when I said until the child has grown up, I don't mean that younger children don't have rights. Th- they do have rights. The, 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 the issue is what they want, mm. not what they have the maturity to know or whatever.
0: Right. So, you know, just to go even deeper under it, when you brought up reasoning, I think that's probably yes. where there's like a big nugget R- here. Reason, yes. Reason. Yes. That's probably like access to reason... Yes. Maybe the most fundamental uh, person. Right. Yes. Of the universe. And, and I mean, is, is that like a fair statement to to assess? I, I guess I'm trying to get a, it's so much of your if I'm extracting it, it seems in your work you you rest sort of the the jewel of the universe on systems of error detection and correction. Yes. Which I guess is an approximation of something like reason. Yes. Reason is the, is the ultimate right. in that. Yes. How how does one detect an error in morality? And you're saying the answers may not necessarily be in morality itself. What if what if we did stumble upon a, an island where they did this to every child? Yes. And that and this culture was I don't know producing beautiful progress in all of these other fields. Would Would that somehow? answer the question that this must then be a moral practice to, to make all the children deaf?
2: Well, yes, it would, provided that the uh, culture there was not keeping the knowledge of hearing uh, from, from their mm. members. If mm. they were a thriving culture in other ways and were open to the knowledge of other cultures, then it's hard to see how that would be immoral. Mm. Uh, after all, there are it, many decisions that parents make have permanent effects or long-lasting effects on their children. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you decide to bring up your child in Albania, with Albania as uh, the child's mother tongue, then uh, the child will, be, will have to learn another language before they have access to most of the world's culture. In, in fact, to be exact, English. <laughs> um, now, it, it, it is not reasonable to conclude that bringing up a child not speaking English is immoral. However, bringing up a child unable to learn English Mm. for some reason
0: certainly is immoral. Because this would deny them, again, this is like... This
2: inability would would be some some irrational thing installed in their their thinking.
0: Right. And this, again, to sort of use your language, would be if you're cutting off uh, potential access to streams of knowledge or treasure chests of knowledge. You're just, as parents or, or as a society, you're cutting it off. You're making it just forbidden. Is this... Uh, I think it's
2: it's more yeah. uh, access to criticism. There's an infinite amount of knowledge. So we always, whatever we do, we're, we only have access to a, to an infinitesimal portion of it. But if if you're deprived of the means of criticism, then that is the irrational thing and therefore the immoral thing
0: Mm. and so if you were to bring back one of your your earlier thought experiences, if you were just in a sensory deprivation tank forever and you had an idea or a conjecture just in the the magic of your own mind that could be criticized or refuted or confirmed by the evidence of hearing something but you were unable to to hear anything in there, yes, this is an immoral situation from some, or or maybe in your view, evil. I'm gonna, I, didn't, I was sort of saving that word, but in your your definition of optimism, this is an, an evil from the view from nowhere. In a way.
2: Yes, I, I think I, I would need a bit more mm-hmm. knowledge about how I got in this tank. <laughs> uh, uh, it was it's, not it's, me, I promise. Yeah. Uh, but if
0: it was your parents, I mean, let, let's say, as Andre and Leslie are saying. In their argument of like we we love yes. our deaf culture and we want our child to be yes. in that. So are
2: of, they yeah. are, are they depriving me of the knowledge that there is an outside?
0: Mm.
2: Or similarly, are, have they imbued me with an ideology um, that that makes me irrationally unable to consent to contact with the outside? Mm. Then in either of those cases, they're doing something immoral. Right. And it's hard to imagine that that somebody who was literally growing up in a sensory deprivation tank could thrive in the way that you imagine that those people on the island could thrive because uh, they wouldn't have access to empirical evidence and they wouldn't have access to, for example, language. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people say that that you're not fully human unless you have some language. Uh, I, I think that can't be quite right because children learning language are evidently doing something highly creative. Uh, Probably one of the most most creative things that people ever do is learning their first language. So they must have been, I think, I mean, we don't have a theory of creativity, but Mm. I suppose that children must be uh, fully people long before they actually have language. So that, that theory about language can't be literally right. But it might be that being deprived of language eventually deprives you of of all means of of being um, uh, productive, being being happy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When he said ra- irrational and therefore immoral, that thing, I thought yeah. that was interesting because uh, you know it's not an association that I have in my brain, yeah. straightforwardly at least.
0: Yeah, let me try to, I'll tell you a story from his book. The other thing about David Deutsch is that he's a—he's actually an incredibly beautiful writer. Mm-hmm. Like he might sound overly academic or you know, sort of pedantic in some ways in, in, in these interviews. And his writing is actually like gorgeous, like mm-hmm. brings me to tears at certain points. And, mm-hmm. and a story from his book about irrational versus rational memes he, he he's he, we'll skip this over for now but he he takes goes from the gene to the meme mm-hmm. and he, and he has these things called irrational memes versus rational memes and he sort of splits societies into static societies versus open societies mm-hmm. this this is where he's getting this idea in that conversation where he would say an ir- a static society probably is full, uh, an immoral society this is a utopian society. It's a society that feels like it has certainty. It stops a culture of criticism. It hasn't adopted fallibism where it, it thinks it might always be wrong. Um, and he talks about Easter Island. And he he compares uh, a David Attenborough going to Easter Island and Jacob Bernowski going to Easter Island, who was sort of a precursor to David Attenborough as a naturalist. Mm-hmm. And they describe it in, in almost opposite ways where Easter Island, we all know it from the big heads, right? And, and oh, I, I don't know it. Oh, it's the one with the really big heads, the big stone heads. You know, you, do you not know the big stone heads in Easter Island? No. This is worse than the Harry Potter thing. Let is me. It? Ju- yeah, come, I, you must know this. Hold on. It's like that. Look, I just Googled Easter Island. Those things.
1: Cold. Nope, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Searching my memory. Oh, my God.
0: Well, um, Easter Island is famous. It's like in the middle of sort of nowhere. It's a very, very isolated island. And it's famous really only for this, for having these giant... Who who built those? Well, this is the thing. So yeah. a tribe that was there, and I don't know all the history of it, um, that no longer exists. And so we come across the civilization with these huge heads, and everyone has these theories for yeah. it. And um, it was... We we finally, for a long time, it was a mystery of how these heads even got to the place. They're all like sort of, I think they're on the coast looking out. And we assume this is like a religious tradition. A lot of anthropologists have sort of tried to get into it and they needed to, to use timber and wood to get Uh, the heads sort of roll them to where they were going to need to go they actually have bodies too which go deep into the ground which is weird that was like recently discovered it it's awesome but but, so jacob Bronowski goes there in the ascent of man which was a which is a really cool documentary series very like cosmos and a precursor to all the the awesome nature documentaries happening now and um describes it as sort of the evidence of a static society Which died, we think died of like rapid geological change. Their environment changed very quickly from different forces and they died off. And apparently while they're dying off, they're like cutting down trees, which apparently they also needed to to live, cutting down trees and, and putting these heads up and repeating the same thing over and over. And then they die rather that so it's almost a caution he, he describes it as a cautionary tale of a society which stopped trying to find new knowledge and new answers mm-hmm. and was and clearly had had the wrong answer um, versus a society an open society that would would be continually trying to discover new knowledge of how to solve the problem mm-hmm. um, so david attenborough goes there and, and has sort of a Um, romanticizing of their culture and as sort of a victim of global climate change and a cautionary tale of what what might happen to us Mm. and the lesson seems to be that he's delivering is almost totally opposite of Jacob Mm. which like Bernowski is telling you like this is a culture he literally calls it like these heads as like the film strips winding down of the same Mm. thing over and over again of of a society that has, has hit a static society Mm. and is suicidal Mm. versus a a society that would continue like us. We would not do this. We hopefully we would continue to try to find new knowledge to solve the problem Mm. and hopefully acquire it. And they almost had sort of the exact opposite, um, uh, description or, or, or prescription of, of the lessons from Easter Island, uh, that's in a chapter at the end of his book called "Unsustainable," and mm. it, it has—it's a, a surprising punchline of the book where it gets to almost the the view of um, sustainability. There's a there's a there's a conception of the idea of sustainability. It works very well in the environmental realm of this perfect balance where we sort of get all the resources that we should be getting out of the earth and sort of stay there, like mm. level, sort of forever. Like mm. we, we're, we're in some perfect balance with this ecosystem that apparently has given us just enough and we sort of stay there. And if mm. we take too much, we'll, we'll break the life support system. Mm. Of course, it's totally wrong. And then it's also just suicidal because we would just literally be sitting there forever, not creating new knowledge, waiting for the next asteroid to come and wipe us out mm. or the next epidemic that we don't know how to solve mm. or whatever it is. And he counters it with... Uh, almost the exact opposite definition of sustainability, which is sustainable growth, which he calls infinite growth. Mm. So it's almost like the sustainability means growing forever. that's sustainable or is sustainable sort of reaching some balance and never growing ever mm. So the Easter Island story, in his view, is a is a the wrong description of sustainability. They'd reached some sort of sustainability, level plateau and sort of a utopia. And died because Mm. their environment changed. Because we do not live in a life support system. Mm. The earth is constantly trying to kill us. Mm. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that explains any of his uh, irrational versus rational. And then he plugs in the word. Maybe he uses uses it as a synonym there for for moral. Mm. That the open societies are moral versus the static societies, which are not.
1: Mm. I buy that. (laughs) So, I mean, I think bringing it back to the dilemma you know I think his analogy to learning English was a good one (laughs) like you know there's nothing immoral about bringing up your kid in Albania by choice but there is something immoral about pushing the button that prevents them from ever learning English or Chinese or another language that would open up much of the world's you know knowledge to them That's about the only line that he'll draw for morality,
0: Mm. which I think is safe is this modes of, of unplugging the ability. He, he, he calls Albanian a disability later, which is, so if we have any Albanian listeners, we've lost them. Yeah. Sorry.
1: Whoops. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't think you even need that analogy though, to see the argument for making your child deaf being wrong i mean you could just observe the fact that i don't know anyone born with all five senses working who chooses to voluntarily make themselves deaf right or walks around with noise canceling headphones on 24 hours a day or you know gets like their i don't even know what part of the ear it would be yeah, cochlear something whatever like just gets the part of their ears that hear removed voluntarily I've never heard it happen once right on the other hand You know i've i've seen people who are deaf or partly deaf Go to great length to restore any amount of hearing yeah the the arrow of you know attempting to Make oneself not deaf it, it only goes in that direction. It doesn't go in the opposite which suggests that there's something desirable from the point of view of human nature about having that sense. Yeah. Um, And that's probably enough to get you to the place where, you know, this should not be, this is an immoral act. Mm -hmm. Um, And no doubt from the parent's point of view, I mean, there's also the fact that, if you can't hear, you can still learn many aspects of deaf culture. Sorry, if you can hear, you can still learn um, sign language. Uh, you can still learn to read lips right. and whatnot. But you'll also have access to the rest of the world. And when your parents die, which will presumably happen you know, towards the middle of your life, you will still be able to have access to the rest of the world and you know if you're deaf then once your parents die the whole rationale for them having made you deaf basically disappears yeah which is like their connection with you and being all being deaf now they're gone and you're just deaf and alone in the world yeah not literally but you know
0: I I try to push even a little bit in the next section about sort of the rights of the parents over the child. I can't get him to budge almost like at all on that. I think he's pretty like stringent about the the autonomy of choice of the individual, even to the point of parents and the choices they make for their kids. Um, Yeah. And you heard, he always just grounds it all as far as he can in just access to criticism, which is again, another one of those like simple ideas, but is almost, if you think about hard, rather profound where in his mind, the sort of moral mortal sin of the universe would be you you come up with a theory you conjecture an idea for a problem that you've encountered in the world, and you are unable to you you are you are cut off from the access to criticism of it, which is actually sort of amazing it's like it's it's like again sort of a beautiful again picture of the beginning of infinity idea you are you have an idea and you're in that hotel and you walk out and you you're at the end there, there, there's no, there's no one who can improve it. And cause you're cut off from it. It's almost like you cannot escape the hotel. You don't know what room you're in. That's sort of the, the trap that he's trying to avoid. He doesn't quite find it. Even though, again, we all find this for a repulsive moral idea. He, he, he doesn't, as long as those conditions are met, he doesn't even really kind of want to use the word, um, immoral and this idea i brought up of imagining an island or a society where there's like all kinds of other progress happening Mm -hmm. and they're doing this to every kid he latches on to because he doubts that it can exist but if it did it kind of would win the argument because he's he's uh again guessing and noticing the links between moral progress and all kinds of other progress that if all the other things were progressing and aesthetic progress and scientific progress and all kinds of explanations, and they were intentionally making themselves deaf, he he would be forced to kind of carry that link with him, that maybe that is also a moral version of progress. Um, And so, yeah, he doubts it can exist. And as you pointed out, it almost certainly isn't the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if those conditions were met, he would, he would revise. So it it is, it is a bit of a, you know, he he sticks to his first principle of openness to criticism and fallibilism. As long as you have that, then what's also obvious here, and I think I'll call it out is um, totalitarian religious regimes are static societies Mm. because they cut off criticism. Um, I would call any actually conception of a moral God, a totalitarian philosophy, because it cuts off criticism. If you know the mind of God, if you think you found the answer, this is no longer a beginning of infinity. You are you are, you are cut off. So it is a static philosophy, and I think a, a, a irrational one and suicidal one. Uh, but maybe that's a bit of a different conversation. But it's all it's all related. I don't know. Also, you should know Easter Island. <laughs> i'm actually i'm like flabbergasted that you don't there was there was a cartoon called the critic mm. before your time as well uh john lovett's played the voice of the critic okay you yeah. don't know any of these references mm. this entire show has been like us missing each other's references yeah. of it pop culture like pretty
1: much generational tension
0: <laughs> yeah anyway there was a kid with an easter island head in that cartoon and it was very funny if anyone knows the critic or remembers the critic Go look it up on YouTube. Probably all the jokes are like totally not PC now. So, <laughs> anyway, we'll continue it. Is there an argument to be made that de- depriving someone or a person of a sense that is likely to confuse them is, can actually help them in a way? I mean, I'm trying to give the parents of this, I also find what they're trying to do rather revolting, but I have trouble actually coming up with a coherent argument against it if their argument is is saying, like, you know, hearing will only bring you trouble in this world. By not hearing, you actually are, you know, welcomed into this magical community where the qualia of not hearing and just speaking in sign, or communicating in sign language um, is somehow better than that. So you can have the knowledge that other people out there might hear, but um, it, it will only bring you bring you harm by doing it. Is there any, like, rational argument for cutting off some sources of of Uh, senses?
2: Well, as soon as you say, as soon as you express this in the form cutting off, Mm -hmm. um, that implies that there's some obstacle being put there rather than the assent to the truth of the proposition. I mean, if it's true, if it's true that the, the deaf people culture is superior, then why should one have to cut anything off? suppose there were a, a reversible way of doing this. Um, I understand that in, in, in real life, uh, it, many forms of deafness are reversible mm. and some parents object to using those. So that that's a kind of converse yeah. of the question you asked. Um, and there again, uh, there's a difference between not availing yourself of a possibility, which is what all of us do all the time, and being prevented from doing so. Mm. Now, if you're prevented from doing so, and the argument is, well, that person would, wouldn't have availed themselves of it anyway, you, that's a matter of fact, whether they would or not. Again, might be hard to ascertain that fact, so uh, you, you'd use tangential
0: evidence. Is it fair to, uh, I'm trying to summarize this in, in unfair sentences, I guess, but is it fair to say something like there is a um, mandatory right to make mistakes?
2: Uh, well, that's certainly true. I, I mean, it's impossible not to make mistakes, but, right. but uh, it, it, shall we say it is uh, forcibly preventing someone from making a
0: mistake is a wrong. Right, <laughs> right. W- which sounds almost counterintuitive, like especially if, as parents if you have a child who you know is making a mistake let's say andre and leslie are right in some in some way and um but preventing their child from coming to the truth that being deaf is somehow better than hearing uh is is this this uh,
2: so yes so turn it round even if they're right, right it's still wrong for them to do it against the child's will Right. Um, I mean, you know, I I think a lot of things that are conventionally done in our society, like making children go to school, are wrong for
0: exactly this reason. Hmm. Can you say more about that one? <laughs> I mean, people might like the alarm bells. I mean, there's something amazing about that sentence that even if they're right, they're wrong. And if we could. Well, slice, this, this yeah. is
2: the, 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 the paradox of democracy, uh, the paradox of liberty. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 we, we came to understand really, really late in the history of the human species, after several hundred thousand years of getting it wrong, that, that there is no authority in regard to truth. If you're going to impose uh, a prohibition on making mistakes, you need an authority for what is, is or isn't a mistake. And there is no such thing. All systems that uh, that uh, purport to have authority that, that purport to have authority in regard to ideas also need to be authoritarian in regard in politically socially and and so on and therefore that idea is inherently tyrannical and in fact all tyrannies arise that way so it's not just a small thing or a marginal issue this is this is what reason and progress are all about
0: so the parents in this case are little mini tyrants in their own in their own way is,
2: is is, as a- as thomas Suss says <laughs> it is a tyranny but like all tyrannies it satisfies a genuine human need mm. and i i would add perversely uh, so pe- people th- these if I say that these uh, deaf parents mm-hmm. are doing wrong in a particular case, I don't mean to contradict the idea that they are well-meaning, that they think they're doing good. Mm-hmm. But because morality is objective, it's a matter of moral fact whether they are actually doing good or not. And one can argue about this and apply criticism.
0: Mm-hmm. And and to bring that again, like in your... How are you measuring again? That objective good is—is is it? I guess we've been dancing around that of like access to um,
2: uh, Chris, criticism. criticism. Well, so destroying the means of correcting errors. Right. I Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I I think that that is the only moral law. Then, then the the rest of the time, I I think that that's foundationalism. That that's that's trying to set up a, a foundation for morality which which can't exist either. There are there are only ways of criticizing existing moral theories Mm -hmm. but certainly it it is a very big deal to destroy the means of correcting errors
0: right and so uh, i was i was actually looking for this this morning in your book and and couldn't find the passage and it was actually annoying me so i cut this part out but if i'm remembering correctly somewhere in the beginning of infinity you in one of your very many deep dives sort of at the trying to get to the foundation of of moral truths of the universe. It was something like, um, so I've, I've always tried to bridge the is ought problem and we'll try to do it here. I've always tried to do it. Even I know logically it's impossible, but in order to do anything, I think we have to try to start building a bridge. I've always been attracted to the way to do it using Carl Sagan. My, my, uh, one of my favorite thinkers and his, one of his famous observations of we are a way for the universe to know itself, which was one of these poetic, Expressions, which when you really think about it deeply is actually just a, a lovely scientific observation. There's no, there's no more poetry in there. It just is actually a pure sort of scientific observation. You seemed in your book to get somewhere um, close to it, if I, if I remember correctly, where I use that sort of Carl Sagan is ought bridge. If you build the is ought bridge with that sentence, there's nothing in it that says, well, we ought to then, the, the universe ought to know itself. But it seems to me that there's no other bridge to build because there, there's nothing else to do but for the universe to know itself. And it's... Oh, uh,
2: I think one can one can make a stronger bridge than that. Do it. Help me. Uh, yeah. So the, the traditional um, ought is distinction uh, as raised by Hume, but also as kind of taken for granted by, by philosophers for, for millennia. Yeah. Um, it's all justificationist. It, it's all about you can't derive an ought from an is which, which is, it itself rests on a sort of empiricist dogma that, that nothing is worthwhile unless it can be built on experiment or, mm. or science or whatever. But uh, we're not in the business of deriving knowledge. We can't derive any knowledge from anything. That's not what knowledge is. It's conjectural and it tries to solve problems. So, and what's more, it's explanatory. So whereas um, uh, you can't deduce or derive an ought from an is, there are many explanatory connections between ought and is. So you, you will find, as, I, as I, uh, I think I said in, in my Edge article on, on mm-hmm. 9-11, that, that um, if somebody is deeply... In, uh, d- immersed in an immoral ideology they will be mistaken about certain facts as well, inextricably right. and vice versa and how come, if, if, if you can't get an ought from an is, how, how come you can be sure that a person who believes a certain evil ideology will also believe a certain conspiracy theory about the facts um, it's because of explanation although it is logically possible to believe any kind of uh, ideology independently of the facts, what uh, human minds want to explain why. Mm. And if they try to explain why it is justified to kill so-and-so, they need to have a factual theory about how so-and-so differs from the person they do not want to kill. And so, uh, in, in the explanatory sense, um, Aughts and ises are intimately linked, and and you can't have one without the other.
0: Mm. Can you derive ises from aughts, or they're just linked in a mysterious way, or can we say more?
2: Uh, as I said, you can't derive anything from anything. From, anything, from anything. But but it, it, certainly uh, aughts lead to conjectures, right? And and conjectures can be true or false.
1: I mean, the ought is yeah. there's so many different ways to approach that. Yeah. So many different. Lenses through which you can look at that problem, where it seems like a genuine problem or a false problem. Yeah, I would like to hear him talk to you know Sean Carroll or someone who really thinks that I would distinction, that just to see
0: both physicists. Yeah, yeah
1: like are are they just going to talk past each other or yeah. you know or Sam yeah. Harris or Dan Dennett or someone? I feel like you but can't anyway.
0: derive anything from anything is such a that, <laughs> it's that, such like a knockdown like wait like what do right? You, but you know yeah.
1: I, the response to that would be yeah sure you can because. Um, yeah, I'm also skeptical of the ought is Mm -hmm. argument that that you can't derive one from the other, but what, what someone like Sean Carroll is going to say, or anyone who believes Mm -hmm. uh, is just gonna say, Oh yeah, you can devise, you can derive is, is from other is, is, Mm -hmm. is statements, right? Like some is statements imply others just logically. And the whole point of the argument is that as a matter of strict logic, the ought can't just be derived right. from from the is so i i, I want to hear him i'm sure i'm sure he has an ar- counter argument to that but yeah I, what does he mean when he says you <laughs> can't derive anything from anything i think do you know what he means by that i think i do so i think you know he goes back
0: to uh jay here i told you i was terrified of this episode because i was tasked with the responsibility of interpreting david deutsch for coleman and you here's a point where uh, I sent I sent the rough cut of this episode to David and he listened to it and helped me understand a few things that he was trying to say a little better. This particular line of, you can't derive anything from anything that Coleman just asked me to explain, he helped me sort of understand a little bit better of what he meant there. Which what he really meant, I'll, I'll play you what I actually responded to with Coleman, which was very close, but what he really meant and was careful about here is that um, there's no foundation to knowledge. There's no ultimate foundation for it, because of course you can derive certain things from certain kinds of conjecture and kinds of knowledge. The example he gave to me in an email while we we were discussing this was you can derive predictions from conjectures or uh, the Explanations, proposed explanations for problems that you encounter in the world such as the seasons ones that we that we we've brought up a few times in the episode if your conjecture is that uh, the explanation of why the seasons are changing is that you live on a round object that has an axial tilt and it and at certain times of the year it tilts towards the heat source and other times away whatever your conjecture is there you can derive a prediction from that conjecture which of course would be a prediction of something like that the seasons are out of phase on different parts of the Earth and and out of sync at at uh, a specific time, which of course turned out to be confirmed. So you can derive certain things from certain things, but his point there is really that there is no ultimate foundation. those knowledge for that knowledge Um, it's just you you can derive predictions and then and then call something a good explanation versus a bad explanation but it's he doesn't he he was trying to push back on me suggesting that his view was somehow a foundationalist point of view so there you go that's me uh, trying to explain it better to you here now and now I'll go back into how I answered it to Coleman which was also quite true and and pushed more on David's literal interpretation of philosophical standpoints and frameworks like empiricism and the mistakes that are are made by thinking that you are deriving things directly from the thing itself. So you'll hear that. I use dinosaur bones. Which actually, you're going to hear, I call fossils dinosaur bones. They're not even dinosaur bones, but David Deutsch also pointed out to me in in an email. In fact, they're just rocks that were around dinosaur bones that made me impressions of them. So anyway, keep that in mind as I answer this to Coleman. Uh, side note: I'm also recording this little edit section that I'm pasting in while I'm sitting at a cafe in Peru, which is lovely. Anyway, enjoy enjoy the rest of the episode. I think I do. So I think you know he goes back to this empiricism mistake all the time and justificationism, which is which is uh, a similar kind of thing. He tries to, as as he calls himself out about foundationalism, he's trying to say there is no foundation on that on that respect. I think he and Sean would agree. Oh. Like there is there is. It, he pulls in um, uh, the famous cave analogy of shadows on a cave. Mm-hmm. So like empiricism, again. So empiricism is this idea of that the only knowledge that you could possibly have, you we get through our senses. This is sort of a Descartes idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's wrong at the time it seemed kind of right you you take your senses for granted that Mm -hmm. you're you are engaged in experiencing the world but as he points out very very early on like that's not even true you're just getting crackles in the nerves somewhere and Mm -hmm. those are representations of the real world Mm -hmm. but this doesn't mean you there is no knowledge Mm -hmm. so uh for example sometimes he talks about like dinosaur bones empiricists uh, the creationists always point out of course like you you've never empirically witnessed or experienced a dinosaur You only see its bones. Mm. So you can only talk about the dinosaur bones. Mm. And a a strict empiricist would say that, right? Mm. You only know about dinosaur bones. You don't know about dinosaurs. Mm. But the power of knowledge and explanation, which you're not deriving from the bones itself, is you need to explain these bones that are in some certain level of strata of the ground or whatever it is. Um, And you need an explanation for how they got there and what they are and that, that's what the power of knowledge and explanation is, mm. which is not false. There, those are real things, even mm. though you've n- never directly experienced a dinosaur. Mm. Um, another example, so like the, the 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 cave on the wall analogy, which I guess is one of those philosophical nuggets we really haven't even talked a lot about. Mm-hmm. But it's like you're looking at the shadows of uh, on a on a cave wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this, was this Plato or Socrates? I don't know. Uh, Plato. Plato. Think, yeah. And. So you never actually directly see the people, but mm-hmm. you see their shadows on this mm-hmm. cave wall. You're just staring at the cave wall the whole time in the slave. And then you are guessing that there is a person who's casting the shadow mm-hmm. or you have, you need to explain the shadow and then a light source somewhere behind it. Mm-hmm. You never directly access this person, but you could predict every time the shadow appears in a certain way, then food appears. So this mm-hmm. person might be bringing food. You've never directly accessed The person or the light source, Mm -hmm. and that is our condition. That's the condition of our minds, which are trapped in black black boxes called our skulls, which never directly access the universe that we're in. But we get evidence of it. Mm. So this, I know that sounds almost like I mean, he's a philosopher, so he's a stickler. Empiricism just can't be true because we Mm. don't directly access actually anything. Mm. It's all just there's a layer between us and everything we experience. Well, Well, the experience itself is the layer us and what's really out there and just to throw one more beautiful thing he writes about that to picture it even more profoundly is he tells this story i think when he was in college um of working with the um uh, a bunch of astronomers who were studying distant galaxies and at the time the way that they were studying them it's probably similar now is they would take photographs from telescopes and print them out on um, like glass slides and then look at the glass slides through a microscope In order to locate galaxies and do measurements or whatever and so just like pause and picture that (laughs) so he he writes about how he's looking through looking down you're like literally thinking about things billions of light years away Mm. in a in a different direction from the earth and you're looking down through this metal thing that we've created with like warped glass that we have the knowledge of how to do and somehow in this other little glass with those little specks But in your mind, you're seeing because of knowledge, only because of the knowledge of it, you're seeing distances that are immense and powers that are huge and Mm -hmm. stars exploding only because of the knowledge. And he tells this incredibly funny story to like hit it home where he was helping these people sort of identify um, the galaxies in, in these slides. And he saw something kind of weird in one of them, and he asked, like, oh, what's this one? And then one of the other, like, experts looked through it, and he's like, oh, that's just a speck of dust on the, on the glass slide. And the monumental shift <laughs> in his mind of scope and scale from a mm. from galaxies billions of light years away or whatever it is to a speck of dust on a piece of glass underneath it <laughs> yeah. was huge. Yeah. Um, but the only difference there, again, is the knowledge. So it, he calls that closer to reality. You're actually – we're getting – between you, your mind, and that distant quasar that you're studying, the way to get closer to it is to put things in between you and it that are our knowledge. In that case, a telescope and a microscope and a glass slide and all of these things that are are actually physically between you and that thing now, Mm -hmm. but got you closer to it somehow, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful Mm -hmm. and sort of blows up the empiricism Argument as it were Mm -hmm. that our knowledge is the thing that comes between us and the world. Mm -hmm. So we have to create more of it Yeah, I don't know. I still don't know how this relates to morality actually Uh is the problem
1: (sighs) (laughs) Well, I think yeah, I mean the move the move he's making is uh, I think a good one, which is People take the distance between our uh, our beliefs about morality and the ideal of certainty Yeah, and they say look how far we are from certainty about this Therefore There are no objective moral truths, right? And he's pointing out that certainty is never on the table even Mm -hmm. in domains Where it's you know, everyone accepts that there are facts. No one wants to say climate change being real is a subjective fact, right? right? Um, or even more basic stuff, like, you know, just the laws of physics, the, mm-hmm. the least controversial laws of physics. He's saying even there, from the empiricist perspective, that's not certain. Mm-hmm. And he's right. And I think I think he's right to draw that analogy. The only difference between, you know, phys- I mean, the classic example from David Hume of the empiricist thing is like, yeah, you've seen the sunrise every day of your life and you quote know that it's going to rise tomorrow but Mm -hmm. on the basis of what yeah but even that
0: even even that is incomplete because the theory of sunrises needs an explanation and if you explain it that it's risen every day and then it's going to rise tomorrow Mm -hmm. that's actually not a full explanation because what if you're on the international space station what Mm -hmm. if you're on the sun what if you're in mars that's actually an incomplete explanation Um, it's a pretty good one that will continue to, to succeed, but mm-hmm. once there's a problem with it, yeah. you need a new explanation for it. Mm-hmm. And so the theory of, the theory of sunrises is, is actually, you know, also might be wrong, mm-hmm. even though it's happened every day. Mm-hmm. This is a, it's almost, there, there's a lot of, I mean you, you talk a lot about progress and, and, uh, and looking at graphs, and one of the really annoying things and habits that we have as humanity is like the straight line bias of you look at a graph and you continue and you just sort of extend it infinitely as if mm. nothing will change. Mm. And the major problem with that is mm. that future casting graphs, it's impossible, impossible, sometimes maybe probable to a degree, but impossible to predict future knowledge creation. Mm. And that's because we don't have a theory for it, and it's sort of mysterious where it comes from, that will drastically change the graph. Mm. And and once you have the right explanation for it, a complete explanation for it. Uh, you have knowledge that will drastically change the graph. Imagine going back like three like even five thousand years and looking at the graph of population. Yeah. What would it explain the huge difference? like if you just extended that line, you'd be way wrong. yeah, so what changed? and it was knowledge creation, a lot of different kinds of knowledge being created, actually, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't the future is unpredictable in a lot of those ways mm-hmm. um, and the problems that it that it produces are also unpredictable mm-hmm. uh, one more thing just to throw into this again i don't even know particularly <laughs> how it relates to the dilemma or even morality but he also writes about the reach of explanations and when he talks about humans being universal explainers and and some some uh, conjectures that we have and theories that we have have universal reach and we talked about the seasons earlier the seasons is a good one because if you could locally be trying to solve the problem of why seasons are happening mm-hmm and conjecture this thing about a heliocentric universe and a round earth and an axial tilt, which makes predictions, In that one in, in particular it predicts that the seasons will be out of phase. Mm-hmm. So you may have never even seen or know for certain, empirically, that there's another side of the earth with land on it, but you're predicting that if there is, and you go there, it will be winter mm-hmm. when it's summer here, mm-hmm. when we're in the north part of it. Mm-hmm. That's testable, mm-hmm. turned out to be true, a good explanation. But that also, think about the reach of that explanation, actually then informs the entire universe. You're talking about seasons and different planets you've never even been to,
1: uh, shapes
0: of universes, because all Because the of explanation
1: physics. also would apply to any spherical object rotating around any star? Is yeah, that like it, it
0: yeah. needs a lot of other things to be true and makes predictions about uh-huh. them. One of the other examples I think he even writes about is like the amazing thing about Darwin and his theory was that he had never seen a gene he had Mm -hmm. never empirically experienced a gene. He Mm -hmm. didn't know they existed, but his theory demanded and predicted that something like a gene must exist. And then we found it, which is kind of amazing that the explanation that explains the problem in the world makes predictions and Mm -hmm. then you look for them. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how science works. That's Mm -hmm. what he calls evidence. Mm -hmm. And then if you find them, it's it confirms it or denies it we know there was problems with his theory and it's still being being predicted yeah. einstein's theory of gravity it's so it's like the conjecture part of it is pure creativity and then and then as he's saying the more the moral sin would be to deny access to criticism or to create a society that prevents criticism to then decipher and decide which explanations are good and which, which explanations are bad and that's I think where he grounds his morality, whether it's foundationalism or not, trying to map it onto just this one child hearing something, I think is <laughs> interesting. Again, we're like sort of off, off that tangent, mm-hmm. but that's David Deutsch. So, in some ways, the oughts are all we actually have then? And we, we know, just check we, it. We
2: can be mistaken about the oughts as, as, as uh, again, the very fact that it's objective, that the fact that morality is objective implies in, in my way of looking at things that mm-hmm. we can be mistaken about it. it. It also implies that by conjecture, criticism and so on, we are capable of correcting the errors, though there's never any guarantee of that. And we never know whether we've corrected an error or have made things worse. Again, uh, if a problem arises, we can make a conjecture about what we've done wrong. That's mm-hmm. all we can... Uh, and how we might fix it. That's all we can do. We, we never have... Firm ground to rest on like in politics, if you have a bad policy that may cause harm, people may die uh, and so on. But but so long as the harm it does isn't of the form removing one's ability to change policies, then it's not as bad as it could be. Hmm. And on the other hand, if it does have that property, then it's worse than anything that the actual policy could do. We never have institutions that do this perfectly. The the error correction. So we always are, should be looking for better, more efficient ways of uh, correcting errors. Uh, but th- they are, are more important than than getting it right in the first place.
0: Mm. So I'm I'm thinking of um, like the anti-vax movement, which I, yes. which has some direct analogies to the the case we're talking about here of a parent yes. saying like, oh, you know, so i mean i guess i'm curious just the way your mind works of i feel like that's a a mistake and usually as you said the people who are anti-vaxxers are clearly making mistakes about the iss as well yes. they usually are ripe with conspiracy theories yes um how, how would you lay out the argument that an anti-vax parent is is uh how would you even phrase it committing them uh is it an immoral act or is this is a, a yes mor- moral well, wrong generally yeah.
2: it would be an immoral act but okay. the the actual case with vaccines is, is more complicated because okay. in some cases the um benefit of the vaccine is more for other people than mm. for that child uh so then there's a question of: uh, are the, Do the needs of the many outweigh <laughs> the needs of the few? Well, not if it involves violating someone's rights. So uh, it, it, it depends on the facts of the of the of the vaccine thing. Now, if, if the if the factual issue is that it is that there is simply a uh, an ideology which believes a the conspiracy theory which is false. Um, then that is one kind of issue. Then obviously it's a moral wrong. Whether that should be illegal is a separate question because you can't necessarily distinguish that case in a court of law from someone who reasonably believes something that the scientific consensus doesn't believe. And there would be no scientific progress if you made such ideas illegal Mm. or if you made acting on them illegal. Uh, the, the, uh, The first... Person to vaccinate children was facing a a, a uh, religious consensus or whatever that 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 said that it was actually harming them, um, and even in modern times, um, some of the vaccines did have serious side effects on some of the children. Now, uh, if a vaccine um, saves uh, a million children, but cripples 10,000 children, um, and those 10,000 didn't want to be vaccinated, I think you've done a wrong. Mm. Uh, Now, again, even that is a highly idealized case. Right. Uh, But
0: you've also done a right in some sense as well, no?
2: No, no. Uh, I mean, you, you've you've helped some people, but that is not necessarily you know. If you're Robin Hood and steal things <laughs> and then given give them to worthy people, yeah, you've helped people, but you've done something immoral.
0: I guess this brings up: are you are you taken in by any of the let's say traditional or codified moral frameworks like utilitarianism or consequentialism? Does, do any of these sort of start to so get at things? From- I
2: I think that all those. So, they're all wrong because they, they are foundationalism. Mm-hmm. They're all trying to set up a thing from which you can deduce all morality, perhaps only in principle, though it's too hard to do the calculation. But they're wrong because they're, there is no foundation for knowledge. Are they good approximations? Well, some of them are good approximations in some situations. But I think they're better regarded not as approximate foundations but as modes of criticism. Mm. So, for example, utilitarianism. Um, I, I think it's silly to say that the foundation of morality is the greatest good or the greatest number. For a start, it's circular. What, what is the good? What, is the, what, we, what we think of is good for us is partly dependent on what we think is moral. So th- th- we, have to, we have to have an opinion about what is moral before we can decide what is good and so on. But on the other hand, if you you, uh, propose to do something uh, and your friend says to you, in what way does this benefit you? And you can't think of anything. They have made a valid criticism. That is a problem that you should be you should want to uh, consider, because it might be that that idea that you should do the thing has lodged in your mind and is is. Uh, affecting you to your detriment. Mm-hmm. And similarly with the, with the social case, if, 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 if you're planning to do something uh, which is going to benefit you, but harm many other people, then, um, and if someone says to you, uh, is, uh, do you really want to benefit at, at those people's expense? Then that is a mode of criticism. The, the answer, the right answer might be yes, but it needs an argument. It it needs some something to solve that prima facie problem. Uh, so, and the, the same with uh, deontology, mm-hmm. which says that you sometimes you have a duty to do things. I, I think all these things, all these proposed foundations, work quite well as modes of criticism, but are
0: terrible as foundations. Right, and so. And conjecturing towards again, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the is there an ultimate sort of purpose of the universe in this way that that you're ultimately building towards? Not in the utopian way. I'm totally sold on the beginning of infinity mm-hmm. that there will always be problems, but but it's the ability the ability to always attempt to solve problems is the is the ultimate goal. Is to solve a problem so you can solve another one. Yes, uh,
2: it's it. I think it's a bit weird to call that a goal mm. because because it it's not something that lies in the distant future a the, the problem is something we have now mm-hmm. um and we will always have problems that too can't be can't be thought of as a goal because we're not ever going to reach the end we're not going to reach the beginning of the end we're, we're not, never going to even scratch the surface so
0: so, calling that a goal, but is, it maybe is the. I'm almost thinking in like a Buddhist way of like the path is the goal kind of thing. It's like the the goal is to always know that you're never done. Well, this
1: I,
2: would you be satisfied if I called that? the human condition, yes. or the the healthy human condition, or the proper human condition.
0: I, I would be satisfied with it. And then I'm thinking, is that, I mean, I don't know if that argument wins for the parents to try to, con- I'm, I'm imagining you as a therapist trying to talk them out of this thing they want to do to this this their unborn child of, in some ways, are they denying the human condition? Maybe this that's complicating the matter too much with the unborn child and the deafness. But yeah, I'm satisfied with that as the human condition and elevating that to the status of... Um a moral good in and of itself is that fair to do
2: in and of itself uh i mean i i I think I would have if if I were in the rather unlikely situation <laughs> of trying to persuade parents uh, not to do a thing um, the I would use that kind of consideration, but I think there are more there are more pressing ways of uh of coming from there for for example uh i i think probably the first thing i would ask is what are you trying to do here are you really trying to uh benefit the child or are you trying to benefit you or even worse the culture that you think is so valuable Mm. Uh, the culture doesn 't have any rights to do things to people. A culture is a is a thing that should emerge from people choosing to adopt it rather than some other culture and uh, if if the reason that your child is going to be adopting this culture is that he doesn 't have the opposite choice uh then you've you 've got a case to answer here how are you different from mm. pe- from parents who do things to, to to their children that you don't approve of mhm
0: and, and is, i mean that is that another way of saying you're denying the child the human the human condition is to make choices
2: uh yes it's 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 to solve problems to to make explanations and the only
0: way to solve problems is is to have well,
2: cho- choices yeah. is one of the one of the things that uh, is a consequence of um, solving problems because we, we choose to drop one theory and accept another. Mm. If we're physically prevented from dropping a theory, then uh, and that has been done intentionally by somebody, then they have a case to answer. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I'm I'm entirely happy with calling that a case to answer. I think like with your island, with your hypothetical mm-hmm. island, which I kind of doubt could exist, but <laughs> s- suppose it could exist, uh, then there would be an answer. The, the answer would be, look, we're not going to tear down all the beautiful things we do here just because you don't like the way we look or, you know, with the way our inner ear looks <laughs> uh, th- that in that situation, there would be an answer. But that doesn't mean that the answer applies in general to other situations. And uh, I think that the more realistic case is that there aren't good reasons. Mm -hmm. There isn't a good answer to that criticism.
0: And is there, I mean, I guess we haven't played with all the variables of potential things that we do to children. Um, In the case as written, you know, the, the parents try to put up an argument of like, well, people in poverty have children all the time, and these are all kinds of obstacles. Do these arguments, are these arguments unique to something as seemingly profound as hearing? Or, I mean, I guess you brought up a case of a kid who who was born in in, uh, Albania and learns Albanian, and and this is some sort of disability in a way.
2: uh, Well, it obviously is. Right, okay. Uh, And I think the the bring up a child in poverty or in a war zone, Uh, or in a tiny community uh, is also a case to answer hmm. uh, I think in particular cases the the there might be an answer uh, but it is prima facie it, it, you know if, if if other things being equal if the parents could bring up the child in a way that did not have those attributes then they should do it un- unless there's a, a, a reason to the contrary and mm-hmm. um, so, but, but I, I as you say, I, I agree with you that the as a matter of degree, the the deafness disability is much greater than the Albanian speaking disability. yeah, uh, but ultimately, they're the same kind of thing, and, as I said in an, in an extreme situation like your hypothetical island, there would there could be a perfectly good answer
0: hmm.
2: for why they should carry on doing it. Oh, uh, by the way, technology will eventually solve this right Uh, eventually there will be no such thing as irreversible hearing loss
0: yeah and can you talk a little bit more about that as in uh, I mean I'm, I'm always and maybe it's why I'm so interested in your books but fascinated in the relationship between let's call it traditional scientific progress or technological progress and moral progress I always think for example of okay we there's a lot of stories we could tell of why civilization sort of dropped slavery and we could tell a sort of a nice moral story of like, oh, we had just an epiphany one day of how terrible this is. And then we we're like, oh, we should all decide to stop doing that. And maybe that might be a true story. But there's also other stories that you could say of, well, it was really helpful that we had the cotton gin and it was economical to not use human labor anymore. So the argument became a lot more convincing to Southern yes. slave owners. So
2: <laughs> there are a number of true stories you can tell right. about a, a gigantic phenomenon like, like the rejection of slavery yeah. by, the, by the Western world you can also tell false stories about it and i think the, the economically based stories are fundamentally false um the the uh, this idea of uh, king cotton and and that kind of thing and the cotton gin that it, it it's all not true that that's not how it happened uh, it, it couldn't have happened that way uh so um uh, but but i think it's not an accident that Scientific progress, economic progress, mm. and moral progress go together. Right. Uh, Jacob Bronowski makes some, some very powerful arguments along these lines. Uh, he says, for example, you cannot really do science at all. You can't make progress in science unless you have certain values like respect for truth, respect for freedom to express ideas, uh, and more subtly, certain Properties of a scientific community are necessary for scientific progress to continue beyond one generation. Now, in, historically, there were many examples of individual scientists who made progress, but they were immersed in, in an outside society that, that did not believe in progress and therefore it didn't continue. They, they couldn't set up the kind of relationships with their students and the, the kind of institutional framework that would be needed for the uh, scientific values to continue. And therefore, it would, was impossible for scientific progress to continue. So it's not an accident that, that those three things and other things all went together in the case of the uh, European Enlightenment.
0: Mm-hmm. And so it's a bit of a... Is it a chicken and egg question or there is a, a common link of this? Oh, yes, there, there
2: is... There, Language, our our language doesn't have a single word for the thing that was needed. But I've I've expressed it in the form, the quest for good explanations. Right. Um, Applies in morality. It applies in science. It uh, it applies in engineering. um, And it applies in politics with a vengeance. Right. Um, And all those things uh, were really part of the same impulse. And it was that impulse that caused both the revulsion against slavery and the, the uh, uh, technology that made slavery less valuable. By the way, Thomas Sowell uh, points out that slavery was never economically valuable. Mm. It, it, it was only valuable to a certain group of people in society at the expense of the other non-slave-owning people.
0: But if I throw a story out of something like meat eating, if we decide it, it's it's used a lot, but if we, you know, went into the future hundreds of years, it's it's I think not an unlikely story that they would be like not eating animals anymore and look back on horror at, at us in some ways. Would the story of uh, per- perhaps in our lifetime lab grown meat becomes Cheap and economical, and tasty, and nutritious, and all that. They'll suddenly be a lot more. Uh, pe- the next day, there will be a lot of moral vegans out there suddenly being like, "Oh, this is great! I never wanted to eat meat in the first place." Is that is that relationship? Am I making that up, or or do we are we already craving that explanation now, and we just don't have the, the technological? Yes.
2: Piece? Well, just as there were people violently opposed to slavery long before the technology was and and even. Despite believing that slavery was economically valuable, mistakenly, Mm -hmm. there were already people who were violently opposed to slavery. And so there are people who are vegans today, even though there's no artificial meat. Now, I don't happen to think that eating meat is in any way wrong. Mm. Uh, However, I'm sure that uh, with the development of technology and not very far in the future... Uh, we'll all be eating artificial meat simply because, as you say, it'll be cheaper, tastier. It'll be uh, better in every way than than using animals. And then, although I don't think it's immoral, therefore, I don't think people will look back with moral revulsion. They will look back with actual revulsion <laughs> because <laughs> the, uh, the process of creating meat is actually revolting. Mm. Uh, it, though, in my opinion, not at all immoral.
0: And you're leaning on the, the that animals are not universal explainers. Yes, in that's that, right. In that regard, so that line. That's right. That so so
2: when, when, where if you kill an animal, um, you're not extinguishing anything because the other animals have everything. The other instances of, of that species have all the things that that, that animal did. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an issue of whether the animals can suffer. Right. Um, uh, again we don't know we don't know how consciousness works we don't know how creativity works uh, so we should perhaps err on the, uh, on the side of assuming they can but, but like with the, um, with the deafness case and, and so on it, it doesn't really entirely depend on whether animals can suffer it, it depends on what people think so, as uh, so long as most people think that animals can suffer, then we have to frame our laws and social institutions uh, to err on the uh, uh, on on the side of caution mm. in that respect. Um, uh, there was a time when people didn't think slavery was immoral. They, it's not that they thought that slaves weren't human. It's just that they thought that slavery was a natural condition of of some people just like some people are young some people are old some people are ill uh so some people are slaves um and so so for example um they would have thought that enslaving somebody was highly immoral unless there was an excuse like they were bad or something but Mm. but in in general enslaving something is highly immoral but actually buying a slave Uh, was not at all immoral it's just uh, you know you're 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 buying the person who is a slave and that's his condition just like uh, it's not your fault any more than the condition of someone being ill is your fault or someone being short or tall or whatever Mm -hmm. now part of the reason that that changed is that philosophically we came to understand that there is a unity among all people which it isn't derived from a, a moral commandment to deem all people equal when they're obviously not equal. But there's an, a factual, a, a factual way in which that we are all equal. Namely, as I would put it, we are all capable of creating new explanations, and it's the creating new explanations that makes it immoral to keep a human slave, but not immoral to keep a dog as a pet.
0: Hmm. So to bring to to finish this up by trying to to pin it back a little bit because we've wandered into a lot of different mm-hmm. uh, areas, but of the of the parents and uh, this this decision that they want to make, I, I, I guess the question is what is the most you, you've said a few times you found it you find it revolting and, mm-hmm. and maybe an immoral act, but. Um, you're uncomfortable making it an illegal act in some way, or like, what's like the most concrete thing that you could no, say? No, it's not that.
2: I, yeah. I, I I think that whether whether it is immoral depends on the conditions in society. Like you you mentioned some hypothetical conditions under which it would not be immoral. Uh, like this a society, island you, right. you you imagined, okay. Um, and if it's not immoral, then it, it shouldn't be. Illegal, either. For example, male circumcision mm-hmm. uh, is kind of in this situation that the vast majority of uh, men who have been circumcised as babies don't object and think it's fine, and and uh, and so on. But if we got into the situation where a, a high proportion of them uh, uh, eventually said that the uh, that this was a wrong done to them, then ipso facto it Mm. would be a wrong
0: Mm. and so to distinguish this I guess I'm getting confused about the notion of of moral realism versus cultural sort of norms so the the
2: morality is about things like the conditions that do or don't thwart the the correction of errors Mm. the things that do or don't uh, in some approximation uh, infringe human rights and so on they're not about things like inner ears. Morality doesn't speak about inner ears or foreskins or, uh, and so on. It, it doesn't have an opinion about that. Its opinion about that is via the opinions of people who are able to make choices, who, who haven't been deprived of the ability to make choices as well as their inner ear or whatever.
0: I think that... That probably puts the bow on it and my my lack of my foreskin <laughs> is not preventing me from trying to make errors in here cool. although i think i resent it a little bit <laughs> so
1: that... i mean there's so much in there i don't I don't even yeah. know what to pick out
0: you but... know the slavery thing is uh, is interesting so mm. he in the book he also sort of um, tries to pull the rug out from under someone like Jared Diamond and mm. his guns germs and steel mm. analysis Uh, I think in general, he is pretty hostile to explanations of progress, moral progress or anything that downplay the notion of ideas. Mm. Obviously it's all about knowledge and knowledge creation and, Mm. and, and the thesis sort of laid over the entire, uh, history of, of the universe, I think is, is really good and, and he is resistant to other theses because he, he sees their, their flaws. Mm -hmm. Something like, um, and actually another thing to point out, he didn't express it in exactly these terms, but why, why did, why did we walk away from slavery? And he sort of rejects my economic story, which Mm -hmm. may have been a sort of like, um, Jared diamond type story. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, it was, it was an idea story and Mm -hmm. it was a knowledge story. Mm -hmm and maybe in particular a darwin knowledge story where the the idea that it is just your condition to be a slave and so this isn't a moral wrong uh was was wrong turned out to be a an inadequate description of the universe Mm -hmm. as almost shown and displayed by something like darwin being like no that you know that that clashes that that's a problem Mm. that idea existing along with evolution and us being an animal and evolving is a problem because it's not a divine condition mm. of that person to be a slave. It actually makes no sense mm-hmm. where absent of Darwinism or that explanation of nature, um, it would, it, it may have made sense. Yeah. It would have been like the, it would, would have been like you having a, uh, an explanation of the magician of just saying like, well, it's just magic or it's just this.
1: But yeah, w- yeah. with slavery, the truth is that, you know, it, it's been practiced in almost every society for the past 10,000 years, and it was only really in America and the West where slaveholders felt any burden to come up with an argument in defense of slavery. Hmm. And that's where white supremacy came in or, you know, is most people who had slaves throughout history, it was they they felt as much burden to defend the practice of slavery as the average meat eater right now feels right. to defend the practice of eating meat it would just never occur to you to come up with an argument in defense of something that's taken for granted right and um i think he's right to observe the importance of the war of ideas in ending slavery um at the same time i'm i'm definitely open to arguments about you know Economics being important yeah, too, it's you know you, you not reduce it to one or the other, but I, I also agree with him. I don't buy the argument that it was just in people's self interest yeah. to and, no longer hold slaves, and they all started observing their self interest, right. And that's, I don't think that's historically accurate. And with the accurate, economic point, yeah. like
0: also it's, it's um like he would say, yeah, like it's not, it's not pick or choose any of them. It's that they're all linked by this, some, this explanatory knowledge and, mm-hmm. and that there is objective progress. And so of mm-hmm. course all of these progress sort of at the same time. um So yeah, yeah. like I did, sort of the chicken and egg question. It doesn't, I think the very matter. big
1: picture there might be true. Yeah. Probably is true. At the same time, there are, you know, historical counterexamples. Mm-hmm. Nazi science, actually, you know, big moral step back, but actually some scientific steps forward. Hmm. China today, hmm. one of the h- worst human rights abusers on the planet, one of the highest growth rates. Right. Um, lots of technological progress. Yeah. But um, I think you would argue that those all all of those
0: cultures well we'll see about china but those cultures do they're unsustainable uh, they're unsustainable right It could be because of the static could be
1: true i mean yeah we'll see we're, we're i think we'll china see. is the probably the biggest challenge to that yeah right now yeah. even if in the grand scheme of history it's an exception that proves the rule it's such a populist exception that i would wonder what he would We'll we'll
0: see if it's sustainable. Yeah. I mean, the argument that like they don't innovate, they just (laughs) steal all the ideas Mm -hmm. for now is, is a, is a pretty good one that might go on for quite a while. Uh, so then, you know, it, it, but if it took over the whole world, then it would become unsustainable because mm-hmm. it would it has this culture of suppressing mm-hmm. criticism mm-hmm. And so therefore will just be wait awaiting its suicide either from within or without because of the errors that it's making that everybody makes mm-hmm. are Uncorrectable because mm-hmm. they're suppressing that correction Um, so for now, yeah, the experiment could run for quite a while of mm-hmm. just stealing people's innovations mm-hmm. um, which yeah, well Yeah, I don't even know if that's a that's a fair thing to say but one more thing on the slavery thing and 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 Darwinism and maybe the theory of of natural selection, which w- w- pulls the rug under the out from under the explanation that this is just people's condition in life is to be a slave. Um, there's something there also harkening back to that notion of reach of explanations, where it is uh, trying Darwin trying to solve the problem of of why there's different differences in species species and the origin of species and those problems I don't, he never set out to solve the problem of slavery when he did it mm-hmm. but the reach of his explanation actually did wash over those shores into moral problems like slavery and pointed out problems mm-hmm. of slavery um which i think is is fascinating so he talks even about um something like the in one of these wonderful talks he did about optimism he talks about in the in the the 50s am i getting this right well yeah in in the 40s and 50s the like the esoteric properties of uranium Mm -hmm. of some random thing on on the periodic table like the entire civilization hinged on knowledge of that thing Mm -hmm. which at the time of studying it hundreds of years before would have been totally unknowable Mm -hmm. Or even now, the the properties of CO two are are a thing, and it's it's unknowable, the knowledge and the reach of the thing that you're discovering, of what it will uh, affect or change when you're discovering it. It's a really great, um, uh, it's a great. Uh, point to make in favor of pure knowledge for the sake of knowledge and Mm. pure scientific research Mm -hmm. in any field right now, Mm -hmm. the entire world could hinge on it Mm -hmm. and kind of does hinge on it and knowledge for the sake of knowledge and finding knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Again, the reach of it, you might find something that has universal reach Mm. Darwin solving slavery in some ways or, or, or delivering a better explanation of humans Mm did a tremendous work, tremendous amount of work in something like slavery, but he didn't set out to solve the problem of slavery, but he may have. Uh, And I, that again, like the one-to-one ratio is, is probably unfair, but he would say, of course they're all linked in some explanatory grand principle way. Mm. I don't know. Mm -hmm.
1: If you look historically, like the, the countries that have had the highest rates of economic growth have also had the highest rates of scientific discovery Have also been the most popular destinations for the migrants around the world yeah
0: which might point more to have a moral you want to be treated well yeah Yeah. right
1: and have also tended to not have truly morally backwards cultures Mm -hmm. or have have tended to be on the vanguard of moral progress you know but those are yeah those are correlations and I I agree with him they're not just accidents accidents of history yeah There, there's some explanation you can find for why they're correlated, however imperfectly. Yeah, and um, you know, in certain cases, you might find examples like China that where the 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 imperfectness of the correlation is especially visible.
0: Yeah. Um, Let's just let's end it there, and let's end season one there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was 14 episodes. Yeah, I had a couple guests who 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 didn't. It was going to be 16, Uh, but we'll take a break. Uh, I don't know when we'll come back. Sometime uh, later in the year, it's going to be an awful year, I think. Twenty twenty politically, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm I, I'm just going to like put on my headphones. Um, and yeah, you have your. If people want more Coleman, you're out there. Conversations with Coleman is out there. Mm-hmm. I've been writing on what Jay thinks. I have a bunch of essays coming out and stuff. So you'll find us. But I'm going to go out there and collect a bunch of dilemmas with interviews with people again mm. for season two. Uh, and we'll see, I might get back more to the roots that we started with of like, here's sort of just like a, a trolley problem type thing and let's solve it. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested in, in taking on people in sort of the political and, and religious realms as well, not just philosophers and psychologists. So we'll see who I can I can throw questions at. Um, and for anybody listening, like this is super fun and thank you. We've garnered a really nice audience. That's very participatory and, and engages with it. If you have any dilemmas that you want to throw, uh, I think you can find me on Twitter or on what Jay thinks there's a contact page and you can send stuff there. Um, send me dilemmas, send me people you want to have on the show. Uh, I love being challenged with that kind of new stuff. And maybe maybe one episode uh, in season two, we'll just do a, a user-submitted dilemma and just take it on ourselves. So, I don't know. What can I say? Thank you for, for listening. And um, until next time. Until next time. Thanks. Hey, Jay here. Actually, not quite the end of season one. You're probably noticing there's a little time left on your uh, playhead. Um, I, uh, I, I, don't do a ton of editing and haven't done a ton of editing of cutting things out in these interviews. If you've seen I sort of just let them go long. And I love these in-depth conversations. And, um, with professor Deutsch, who I'm clearly a big fan of, I continued talking for a bit after the end as we were wrapping up and we get into some pretty fun conversations about what he worries about and Trump and other little things. So I'm just going to include it here, sort of bonus material. Um, so enjoy. And you, you're going to hear a little laughing from uh, from in the background of my girlfriend who I have to thank for coming along on a few of these interviews and helping me and taking notes and and helping me when I forget things. Um, you'll hear that. And then just to preface this thing that we talk about briefly here again, I encourage everybody to go read the book, Beginning of Infinity. It's just incredible. Um, there is a chapter in the middle of it where he he breaks into just this amazing kind of play with Socrates in conversation. Um, And um, we reference that chapter about Socrates in the middle. So anyway, that puts into context the next little bit. I'm going to just play it to the end. This is me and David Deutsch, the end of season one. Enjoy. I love you all. See you in season two. Bye. Gosh, that thing, I, I kind of failed to remember it. There was some sentence I was looking for this morning about, I could have sworn that you came to some like, if there is one commandment in the universe, it's something yeah, like that's that's in the Socrates dialogue. It's in the Socrates dialogue. I couldn't find it this morning. Yeah. I mean, what was so, the line there that you came to? Well, he was sort of honing Socrates. Socrates says, I
2: if there, I wanted to put it in his mouth, so right. I wouldn't have to say it. Yeah. <laughs> it if there is a uh, an ultimate basis for morality, it must be not to destroy the means of correcting
0: errors. Yeah. And you, but you, are you passing the buck there, little to Socrates, just I'm, to give yourself an answer? I'm
2: still <laughs> passing the buck because it, it's, if you take that too literally, mm. it purports to be a foundation for morality. Whether or not it's a foundation, whether or not there's something to morality other than epistemology, mm-hmm. that, that's another way of putting this. Is there something to morality other than epistemology? Uh, and if, if there isn't, then you don't, you don't need a foundation. I mean, the issue of foundation doesn't come up because it just, you know, there's no foundation to epistemology. Right. So it, it, morality is just a matter of epistemology which doesn't have a foundation, so yeah. that's fine. Problems exist in one person, in one mind. So you have problems. The implications for other people uh, come from the nature of knowledge. It, for example... Uh, you need institutions to grow knowledge. And institutions have to involve other people and they have to survive the deaths of those people. Mm. So that already puts heavy constraints on what you should think about institutions. And that has implications for law and morality and politics and, and, and interpersonal relationships and, and society and so on. So, but but it, it all comes down to conditions for solving problems. And problems are in individual minds. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't have any truck with the benefit of the universe. It, you know, it it the yeah. universe is 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 doesn't have opinions. It it doesn't. Uh, and if it did have that that wouldn't. It's like saying you should do what God says. You know, right. it, it's it's not a superhuman thing that can tell us what to do. It doesn't even have opinions, but even if it did, it, it wouldn't have the right to tell us what to do. <laughs> uh, and, and nor do I believe that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, except when they do, that, except when that is the right thing.
0: And you're only gauging that right thing again by, like, um, let's say, promoting conditions where yes, errors can be yes, detected and yes, corrected. Yes.
2: If our society collapses, uh, if civilization is going to come to an end, it will not be by reverting to a static society, it will instead disintegrate. It will just be uh, progress will cease, but it, it won't be replaced by by orthodoxies. Uh, that mode has been destroyed by by the West, by the existence of the West. Even present-day static societies pretend not to be. They they. And they don 't entirely suppress uh, progress they they only suppress progress away from their obedience to the to the rulers hmm. but that 's not how static societies worked in static societies. The rulers were as much slaves to the memes as anyone else uh, so I, I i don't think that will happen and, and I also don 't think that our society shows any sign of being doomed uh, they've always been Fads and they've have always been uh, retrograde uh, motion in various ways. Um, you know, in 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 the nineteen twenties and thirties, there was the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and and in my memory, children were being beaten in school with with, with canes, mm-hmm. and today that's illegal. So so we went from something being compulsory to something being illegal within one lifetime. That's amazing. And there, there are dozens of cases like, it's not only, not only that, there are dozens of ways in which society has improved, both in its laws and in its opinions and its morality and everything. Now, some things have gone backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that on the whole, um, things have still been, been improving. Now, Unlike Steven Pinker, I don't say things have been improving in the same breath as saying, I think they will continue to improve. Mm-hmm. That's a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, when they, when, if things ever get worse, it will be from a moment when they shall have been at their best ever. <laughs> so uh, by definition, mm-hmm. so you, ju- just because things are improving doesn't say anything about what's going to happen. But I, I think that the, the signs are not there. I think people are unnecessarily panicking about things like Trump mm-hmm. and and uh, global warming right. and uh, and political correctness and and so on. The, all those things are uh, retrograde steps, but they are on a smaller scale than than ones that we've had before. They're not really something to worry about.
0: Yeah. So, do you, what do you worry about, if anything? <laughs> Uh, The asteroid. I I mean, I read that part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Weapons and mass destruction in the hands of terrorists. Right. That's that's a thing to worry about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: And I I think I I fear that 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 is a a catastrophe is going to happen before we do anything.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, But this is a catastrophe. You know, a few million people killed is kind of small compared with the stuff that happened all the time in the 20th century so it's still we're still better off we mm-hmm. we, 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 if we are scared of terrorists nuking New York mm-hmm. uh, that's still a fear of, of, of an order of magnitude less than the fear that the Nazis would invade Britain
0: right yeah well okay good <laughs> <laughs> that's a rosy picture anyway yeah well, um, kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I could talk to you all day, but I should probably let you go. We've been going about an hour and a half. Well, it was very pleasant. It. Yeah. No, it was really fun. Uh, yeah, and I don't know how much again we helped. Uh, what were the names? Andre and Leslie. The the parents. We disapprove of their action, but it's about the best we can do is conjecturing that it's probably a moral mistake. I think
2: maybe we we can we can. Um... Uh, do some opinion polls among the the children uh, uh, who this has been done to mm-hmm. and see whether e- the children as well d- to see whether they answer like a person who is enjoying an opportunity or like a person who can't bring themselves to think of anything different. Uh, we should be doing this with also, with the much more numerous kinds of children who are being brought up in, in religious ideologies yeah. and yes. madrasas and, and things like that.
0: Yeah. So if you had like a, a future qualia machine for, the, let's say, this child, it happens to them and they're reporting to you like that they're pretty happy, but they don't, they've never had the qualia of hearing. And then you somehow delivered it to them in a, in a meaningful way and you were, were somehow sure set aside the problem of other minds for a second. You're somehow sure that they're experiencing it. And then they still say, yeah, I don't want that. I'm good. Then you've gotten your your actual yes, well, call actually, that matters.
2: Yes, I don't think we have to wait for that futuristic case. There will always be children who were deaf, mm-hmm. were brought up deaf, not because their parents did it to them, but yeah. because they actually were, and who then regained their hearing. And there will be then, and, and the parents may have had a moral dilemma about whether to approve. Some of them will have approved it. Some of them will have approved it with trepidation, Mm. thinking that their their child will then lose his moorings and and so on. You could ask that child, you could ask those parents for that matter. Uh, And this will, so this will either change the debate and that subculture will change its mind. Right. Or it will make obvious what a future law should say.
0: It seems, I mean, if you've seen videos of people like getting cochlear implants for the first time and it's emotional, I mean, they're beautiful videos. It seems like an obvious one. The only thing to throw sort of a little poison in that well is that Andre and Leslie worry that their child will connect with them less if they can hear.
2: Oh, well, that's not their call. Lots of parents worry that their children don't connect (laughs) with them enough that that is not their business
0: yeah well yeah that's the last thing that i could i could give them is saying like is, so is there any sort of special privilege as a parent you have over the autonomy of your child No, you
2: have only special obligations not special privileges uh,
0: and that might be the, the the kicker for them to just be like too bad you yeah. should try the cochlear implant too <laughs> so i guess what i yeah. would say to the parents yeah being like it's probably great um cool Thanks, Professor Deutsch. This was awesome and a huge, huge honor. Again, I'm a huge fan. Well, thank you. It was fun. Thanks.